Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we're going to be talking about Seagraph. We just we were just there. I I was just there a couple of days ago, and uh, and we had great, some really great coverage. Um, I think I think we we played with we learned a lot of new things. We built new rigs. We did it a couple different ways, <laughs> all in the same day. So um, so we're going to talk about the rigs. So n- next week we're going to talk about SeaGraph, the actual what we saw there. Today we're just going to talk about the rigs and the pipeline and the process and the teams and everything else. So stay tuned for that for the second hour and ask those questions in Makana if you have them. And uh, otherwise, let's go ahead and jump into the first question. Bill, what do we have? Chris Widener starts us off this morning from Lafayette, Indiana, with the SanDisk problem that everyone is going with. I need a new 4 terabyte external solid state immediately as a backup and to continue working on projects. So I guess he's looking for recommendations. Go ahead, Alex. Alexander, sorry. sorry. Uh, yeah, the uh, small rig uh, little M2 NVMEs. I like these. These are super portable. Uh, they do 10 uh, megabits per second. Uh, uh, megabits, gigabits per second. I can't remember. Uh, I tend to just uh, stick my own NVMe drives in here. I like the, the Samsung uh, Pro Series NVMEs and also the Western Digital N- NVMEs. And they're good. They're reliable. Um, they have a built-in heat sink. I mean, the whole thing is a heat sink. So if you want something that's portable that'll just plug into any camera that has a USB port, these work really well. If you want something faster, I would recommend Thunderbolt if you just want something that you can plug into a computer. Go, Jason. OWC makes, um, I think it's called the Envoy Express, and it's USB-C. I think it's USB-C only, and you, it's kind of like bring your own drive, and it is truly, truly compatible. There, take that with their NVMe, and um, you've got a winner in my book. And I would keep on pointing back to the OWC, um, their NVMe RAID, which a lot of us really like. I learned it from Chris, and I think that Jason has one as well. A couple other people might have them. It's really nice. <laughs> Raids are really nice. All right, next question. Next one comes to us from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida. And Jeff said the pros and cons of Google Meet for uh, two to five person meetings. Uh, go ahead, Chris. I think it's uh, the, pr- the con is in the name, Google. Uh, do you want to build up on something? Google has a tendency to pull the carpet out from under people uh, often and repeatedly in the past. Why? Why lean into that when they'll go away? Go ahead, Courtney. The pros would be if all of your friends are on Android and not in the iOS universe, uh, because it comes as stock on all the Android phones, uh, as a, just like uh, FaceTime is stock on the iOS between all the iOS products. So it's good for that, but it is cross-platform. You can put it on the, uh, uh, the Evil Empire's phones if you want to, but... Uh, it is Google, like Chris says, and they're like likely to pull the plug on it. I like that we have good balance here. Uh, go ahead, Jason. I would say uh, Pro would be if you're using Google's paid service, which used to be G Suite and is now Workspaces for Google. Uh, it integrates seamlessly into a, an office environment. The con is that there is nothing that I can think of that Google Meet today does better than Zoom. Go ahead, Chris. The real power of office hours, Alex. The real power is that one day I will sit across the table from Courtney and enjoy a meal. Without office hours, we would have never crossed paths. 
Exactly. Um, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, I've obviously used Google Meet or Hangouts for a long time. Um, the uh, Yeah, I will say that the convenience of it, it, it ties into the Google calendars. Um, it's easy to open. It can work for most people. I think that there, those are some of the advantages that it's just easy to click open. Um, the way that it um, displays people is pretty rudimentary, um, and they've, they've gotten better. They've tried to catch up with Zoom, basically. Um, and um, the, as Jason said, I don't think there's anything that Google does uh, Google Meet does that's better than Zoom, I think, other than just the convenience of being tied into the Google ecostructure. I do think they'll stay around for a while. I mean, this is kind of a core app, but I do, but I do think that it's, it's, um, you know, it's never going to be, you know, the, the, like, for instance, not having an app, doing it all in the web browser limits you to what they have in the web browser. And so how your devices and everything else are all set up or is all through the browser, which is pretty limited. Um, you know, so, I mean, you know, for, for a lot of those things, not on the phone, but on the, on the, on the desktop. And I find it to be, uh, you know, a little frustrating when, every time I go into a meet, <laughs> you know, so, so, um, so I, um, you know, it took me a while. It, I only until recently could I get my US, my mix pre to show up in Google meet on the Mac. So that's the kind of thing. And they, and I don't think they just, they don't care about peripherals. They don't care about any of those things. And so, so I think that the problem is, is they're really looking at lowest common denominator, people being able to do video chat. And, um, I think that, you know, the, the level of, of tooling that we have in, in, uh, zoom is so much more is profoundly better than me. Um, but you know, if, if you want to, the, the only issue you get into is if you build a, a calendar event and you end up with a Google meet link and a zoom link, then there's a lot of confusion. Everyone shows up in different meetings. Um, but I, I would, I would, I don't think it's better in any way other than if you have a lot of Google users. Um, next question. Next one comes to us, Mandy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. He says, did Fujifilm release a convenient strip script clerk camera? I've never heard that term before. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Well, what he means by a script clerk camera is on set, a lot of um, uh, script supervisors and wardrobe people will use an instant camera like a Polaroid to shoot uh, stills of all the actors and for continuity to take notes for continuity. Uh, because they can have a little printout that they can put into a little book or put on a lot of, uh, you'll see a lot of wardrobe supervisors with a string of uh, Polaroids all strung together uh, with a picture of each character and what their wardrobe looks like. So uh, that's what I think he's talking about. It's an interesting camera. This is what it looks like. It looks like a conventional 35 millimeter camera, but it's a digital camera that takes this uh, Fuji instant film and they put a lot of, uh, little uh <laughs> they made the design a throwback with a little film winding thing there and a, all the little buttons and stuff that you would have and a, you know a rangefinder type of viewfinder um and then it uses this instax fujifilm which is an instant i guess a polaroid technology instant film uh, only made by fuji um that has 60 prints in it so that you can take a picture oh it does have a uh, lcd back on it uh, so that's interesting, but it still has the little film winder. I guess that maybe ejects the film uh, once you've uh, taken your digital picture. So it, it stores it digitally in the camera, as well as giving you a printout that you can hand to somebody the old school way of emailing. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Robert. <laughs> Robert. Uh, where I work, we uh, will tape a uh, a couple different shows uh, on the same day and they'll they'll just come into what we still call the tape room even though it's evs server they'll come in and we'll bring up the show and uh, show it them on the uh, on our uh, screen so they'll just come come into the tape room 
Yeah, go, Bill. That's the coolest niche product I ever saw, uh, particularly because I'm, I'm guessing here the way that he designed it that way. It looked from Courtney's picture that he threw up like there was a big margin at the bottom. And I was thinking, why did they put the picture up at the top and the big margin at the bottom? But then I realized, so you get a hole punch and you punch a hole in that big white margin at the bottom and you put it on a chain around your neck. And then when you pull it up, you can see it right side up. I bet they thought this through well, for just this I mean, job. It just looks like a Polaroid. <laughs> it's just that they wanted to give that's you the Polaroid the, experience. Yeah, the, That's where the chemicals exist. You see, yeah, that's that is. It is. You remember, this, remember. May be used, this may use some. I'm curious as to whether it uses, uh, it must not use a photographic process because the image has to go onto a digital sensor rather than onto the film itself, unless there's right. some kind of prism in there. So I'm wondering if it's just a little digital printer, a little tiny LED printer that prints it as it ejects it, it exposes it. It exposes as a digital image scanner onto the, the paper. I'm very curious to see what the technology inside is. One of the things I think is interesting is nowhere can I find the resolution of the digital version. Like, <laughs> it is like I, it's not it's in the not specs. It's like, yeah, exactly. I, th- that's the only thing that scares me is that it's kind of like, and it's three six forty by six, you know, by four eighty or something like that. You know, it's not. I can't. Um, and this is not the first time they've done this one. This is the new, the new one. But they've had other ones out that that have done these kinds of things. Um, is there is the Mark Two. This is the market. Anybody know exactly. what it costs? Because this sounds like it'd be really fun. 200 bucks. 200 bucks? Yeah. But I kid you not, I cannot find anybody talking about the resolution. It's like they told everyone, don't tell anybody what the resolution is. So um, so anyway, uh, so anyway, we'll see. We'll see. Um, you know, I think that it's it's actually for the kids. You know, it, it's it's this idea that you could have, you can take pictures and go retro. You know, all your friends are taking pictures with their iPhones, but you can have you have this cool little thing that you can hand them for instant gratification. And I think that that's really, um, you know, where it comes from, you know, that was part of there's there's a retro trend around Polaroids. There's this really high end Japanese shop that's in Berkeley, and and it's right next to the bookstore that I go to. And my, uh, my, my daughter and I walk through it, we never buy anything because it's really expensive, <laughs> but but we but we look at all the cool little pens and paint and and the little things that are there. And one of the things they have is all these po- this whole section for Polaroid. You know, it's like this idea that you can go retro. And so I think this. But the problem with Polaroid is you always go well. Eventually, I'm going to want a digital version of that. If it ever if it ever comes out as a good photo, this is why I never used Instagram until they let you put images into Instagram. I wouldn't use Instagram because it had the camera built in. And I was like, if I shoot anything that I actually am happy with, I'm going to be really bummed that I did it in this app. And so I, you know, so it kept me out of Instagram for years, you know, it's just that I, and then they finally let me import it. So then what I do is I take pictures and then I bring it to Instagram. But I was like, there's no way I'm going to take the picture there. Um, and, um, uh, so, the 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 Polaroid thing is really interesting for instant gratification. We used to use it when I was in, uh, when I was doing shoots in Africa. You know, it's gotten a lot different now. But back in when I was there, when we went into the rural areas, nobody had any cameras. Like no one had a picture of themselves. Like nobody. And um, and so we would take, but we, I didn't want to take pictures of people for me and then not leave them something for them. And so we used to always take Polaroid. Um, uh, Polaroids with us. And so we would take our pictures and then we'd take Polaroids and give them to everybody. And I came back to the same village like two years later and all these little Polaroids were up on their, on their walls. Cause that was the, that was the picture that they had you know, of, of the family. And, um, and so, uh, so we used to hand out the one key, by the way, is don't run out of Polaroids. Um, so, so you, we, we made sure that you had enough Polaroids for the whole village. Um, and, uh, but, uh, I think that the instant gratification is a really, really interesting, um, really interesting thing that, it's kind of this whole, anytime things get really high tech, there's always this reverse that wants to go retro, that wants to go 
anti that. And I think that's what this camera is built for. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, it's kind of also the uh, inkjet printer uh, type of business model because the film print film costs thirty seven dollars and eighty eight cents oh, yeah. a package of sixty prints. But the neat thing is you can go back and you can do multiple prints. So you can call up a picture since it's digital that you shot earlier and print another copy of it, even after the person you took the picture of is long gone. So yeah. that's kind of handy too. Next question. David Brady in New York City is up for us next. And David says, looking to add a DVD player to our AV stack at the Sunday place. But when I connect direct to any input on the ATEM Extreme, it flickers and then blanks. Any idea why and how I might look at solving that? Go ahead, Chris. Go ahead, Chris. Can you guys hear me? Or is this yeah, I can hear you. I can, yeah. uh, maybe I can go with, with Chris's yeah, go, go hearing us right now. Um, yeah, I think what you need to do, uh, David, is is find the ghost of Jack Valente and slap him around a little bit for inventing, forcing the manufacturers <laughs> to adopt HDCP, which is high definition content protection, which exists on all high resolution DVD players and the ATEM is not HDCP compliant. So what's happening is as soon as it finishes the EDID handshake, it goes, Hey, you could record stuff. I'm turning off because you're going to try and pirate me. And so that's, what's going on there. So you need to yeah. find you a little splitter that can strip off HDCP before you go into yeah. your, uh, uh, yeah, the ATEM. Yeah. yeah. There's a, if you, um, the big thing is S the SDI doesn't carry HDCP. So if you, if you get a, um, um, a, a less expensive HDMI to SDI, Chinese A view makes, makes them, um, they have a, they have a, a bug, we'll call it a bug that they will handshake the HDMI, but they will not pass it through. Um, so they handshake the HDMI inside the, inside the box, they pass it out as SDI. And if you have another one that goes SDI to HDMI, it, what, what comes out the other end has no HDCP. <laughs> so, so it's, um, and it, I, I, I actually, now that I think of it, I don't know if that works um, because we've always done it from HDMI to SDI and then SDI into whatever we're doing. I think that the S HD, HDCP has to exist or it doesn't have to exist. I'm trying to think. No, it doesn't that. have to exist. Oh, no, because the, the handshake, the handshake's going back to the player from that first one. And so the second one can just get raw HDMI. Yeah, so that, that should work. So you go, you go, you convert from HDMI to SDI, SDI to HDMI, and you have to have one. And, you know, a lot of times the bug is not published. So um, the bug, you know, <laughs> we call the bug, um, is not published. Uh, so you have to buy a couple of them to figure it out because the, even some of the same make and models will not handshake HDCP. It's a very odd thing. So you buy a couple of them and then you send, them back, send back the ones that don't do HDCP. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, that's kind of a more expensive way to do it. Uh, there are a number of Chinese ones, and I don't know if this is one. You kind of have to read between the lines. Just a splitter, HDMI splitter. That will strip off. Uh, it will will handshake and say, yes, we're HDCP compliant, and then split it off and give you an output that's clean. That's and how, what's that, $14? How much yeah. was that? <laughs> $14. So it's a lot cheaper than converting to SDI <laughs> and then guessed. back from SDI to HDMI. That's just the way we've done it because we had those, those converters laying around anyway. Um, yeah. Next question. Next one comes from Douglas Carmichael. Douglas says, would there be any AI-based vo vocal synthesis tools that could add add realistic singing to a track. Yeah, <laughs> they already exist. And they got Frank Sinatra singing Nine Inch Nails. And they've got, uh, I mean, it's already, the AI stuff has already gotten out of control. I mean, some of those tracks are amazing. Um, you know, or they had, no, it was, it was he was, um, 
had Frank Sinatra singing something that was just like outrageous, uh, you know. And YouTube and, um, is full of cover AI covers of uh, you know so Johnny good. Cash singing the Barbie song. That's the latest one to, oh, to so full good. some prison blues background. It's really good. you know the problem. The problem really is is that people keep on thinking that AI is somehow that oh you can't copyright that and everything else. The problem is is that it just provides random enjoyment. It's like like you know and and the and the issue is is that that takes up time from all the other things people could watch. Is having I think that the the, the proliferation of, of AI is going to mean that there's just lots of disposable content that we're kind of just like, oh, that was really funny. And then we go move on to the next thing. And and so I think that it's going to get harder and harder to to be heard. There's a lot of noise, but it's very funny noise. I mean, <laughs> I definitely, um, I think TikTok gives you a little bit of that as well, is that you know, it's low, low, uh, um, low effort or, and, and when I say low effort, I was watching TikTok last night and, um, I was like, wow, that was a lot of work. Like, like some of these, some of these videos that they're doing on TikTok, I looked at like, I, I thought, you know, <laughs> I used to produce stuff for Musical.ly and some for TikTok for other clients. And so I know what it takes to do some of those. And some of them I looked at, I was like, that took like three days to do that 60 seconds. Like that was not, I mean, I get that they did it with their phone, but I was like, that was no minor, no minor build, you know, for them to do that. So it's, it is, I mean, there's, there is a lot of effort hidden um, in some of these things. Go ahead, Bill. Is it really fun up until somebody does Taylor Swift doing selected readings from Mein Kampf or something? It'll, yeah. it, it's going to mess a lot of stuff up, but that's just where we are. We're going to have to yeah. learn to deal with it. It'll, it'll be, they'll take it down. Uh, next question. Alan Jones in Vincenza, Italy, says F1 TV, Formula One TV, got aggressive and started blocking anyone using a VPN, regardless of location, legal or not. Being in Italy, I'm theoretically forced to Sky Sports Italia for coverage, which sucks due to language and bias. Is there any way around Formula One TV's tactic? Here, Jason. It just depends on on how exactly they're they're blocking VPN. VPN when it's done properly using using kind of a homespun uh, MDNS should work no matter what. So in short, if you can get somebody that's outside of this constraint, let's say in the United States or in Canada, um, to allow them to you know to allow you to tunnel in to them, what's really being blocked here is the place that the um, VPN emerges onto the public internet. They don't actually know the tunnel that it's going through. So my guess is unless there's something I don't know about this particular tactic, it should work with a homegrown VPN. Yeah, it shouldn't know. I mean, I know I did. This, I do this I, before this year. I, I would um, sign up for the NFL ticket in India, and then stream it back because so I was entering the NFL uh, from uh, uh, from Delhi, and that because what what it did is it eliminated all the blackouts. Um, so so all the blackout things, and I'd back backhaul it back to me so I could watch Steeler games, um, and um, and so the the whole I this whole region region. Uh, Building all these regions for broadcast is repugnant. Like I, you know, and we'll keep on doing research. I'm happy to publish everything we can figure out to do this. This is just dumb, you know. And and I, as a as a sports lover, you know, the idea that I would pay the NFL. I know it's not the. I know you're talking about the F1. That I'd pay the NFL $150 for a season and then not be able to watch what I wanted to watch is is repugnant, <laughs> like, you know. And and so uh, there's a lot of things I do right, but it, this is just wrong. Um, and so. Uh, so we'll we'll keep on researching it and try to give you more information because we we would like to damage that that business model. Um, next question. 
Mark Renzel in Tumwater, Washington. What would be a good 3D printer printer for a beginner under three hundred dollars US? Under three thousand, you get a really good one. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I always uh, recommend the uh, the Ender three V two version two. It's uh, two hundred thirteen bucks on Amazon. You can also buy it directly from Creality with free shipping in the United States, and I could get it by August sixteenth next week. Uh, sometimes within a couple of days, but I have one of these and it works well. It's my second printer. I've my primary printer. I've switched out to a K one, which is a Creality K one. It's about five times, four to five times faster than the V two that I just showed there, uh, and it has a bed leveling and the same print size, about two hundred and twenty. 220 by 220 millimeters or about eight inches cubed is the print space. Uh, they work good. You do have some assembly required on the Ender 3 uh, V2. You have to put the, you know, assemble the gantry and put about four screws in, but it's not anything you can't do in about 30 minutes. So it's, it's not too difficult to assemble. It's not enclosed. The K1, which I mentioned, the high-speed version, which is around 600 bucks, um, is uh, it, it's a lot more plug and play. It comes already assembled. You pull it out of the box, plug it in, and you're ready to print. Um, and it is enclosed, so it can print uh, more types, supposedly more types of filaments. But because of its high speed, it's a bit finicky with TPU, I found. So anyway, that's my 3D <laughs> perspective for today. Next question. Next one comes to us from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida. Experience using Descript for client review and commenting on a video. Is it similar to Frame.io, he wonders? Yeah, I haven't used Descript to do that. I've been using Frame.io for the last, I don't know, four or five years, and I'm pretty happy with it. <laughs> I have to say that it's, it is uh, the, the entire subsystem of how Frame.io works um, is, uh, I find to be very seamless uh, in that area. So I, I don't know if... Uh, I don't know if I would go down the path of, of using Descript for this process. Go ahead, Bill. Well, it was really interesting. You know, they came on the show and everybody got really excited about them and it looked like they had a great process at work, but I haven't heard of anybody actually having adopted and use it. Now, maybe just most of the people I talk to don't do a lot of this kind of work, but um, I was surprised that the interest we, and the fall we're, off we're was... We're playing with it. I mean, we're, we're playing with it for some of the stuff we're doing. I think that the problem is, is that we keep on just running up. We probably need to have them come on for another hour. I mean, I think that the, 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 the product is really interesting. Yeah. Uh, the voices didn't quite work work, like trying to like fill in a, a word or something like that. Um, the cuts uh, for us were not like if we added like get rid of all the spaces or whatever, I think it probably worked for someone who was in marketing, but not necessarily someone who does audio. You know, like so yeah. I think that that's the that was the um, uh, the little problem there. Uh, and um, I've been trying to build a pipeline around sending Descripta. And, and so I think that we, we're going to end up using it for some of the stuff that we're doing. But I'm trying to figure out how to hand it the content that I want in a way that is the best. So, for instance, like with the Michael Krasny show that we're doing, um, which, by the way, today is going to be great. <laughs> so, so anyway, we're talking – there's a um, an author talking about how Amazon and so on and so forth runs and the things that work and don't work and so on and so forth. It's going to be a really good episode. But – one of the things that we're doing there is is I don't really like having super sources cut into weird little pieces. And so so what I want to do is record both ISOs uh, and record the audio, then clean the audio up, not editing it at all, and give the the two videos and the two and the two ISO records to Descript. 
and have it do something, you know, and build, build things for us, build sections for us where we do it by text. So that's our goal right now. And we haven't gotten it totally working yet. It's, it's a process of building that pipeline up. We'll probably show everybody what we did once we figure it out. I mean, I'm kind of an open production production person. So, so we'll like publish what we, you know, the process that we're using once it actually is working. But the idea there is that we can do, and you know, over unders and we can put the, put the text in and we can do all the things that, that Descript does well. The good news is when you're recording with good mics and you have it relatively set up, it's actually a pretty, I mean, obviously it has a lot to work with. So the, the text, uh, speech to text is really good. Um, so I, it's one of those things that we are very close to. I think it's a really powerful app. I wouldn't use it for commenting. <laughs> like, you know, this isn't the place that I would use it, but I think we're going to end up using it. And I think it's going to go from being just basic to a, a full pipeline. Same thing. Um, one of the things we're looking at for office hours is how do we build little snippets that you could put in a vertical format and put out. Um, and in that case, I'm also looking at basically taking a record of the, um, uh, a record of the active speaker so that I can just get, you know, I can just get the active speaker out. Um, then, uh, then we can have it build something for us. I just don't like the, I don't like seeing lines from the super sources that are cut into the, into the show. I feel, feel, I feel like it looks janky. <laughs> That's a technical term for it. Uh, next, next question. Peter Belbin, Houston, Texas up next. Has Windows 11 reached the point where it's considered stable enough that Windows 10 users can upgrade and expect all the various production tools are going to work properly? John. The one caveat with Windows 11, which I have on my personal machine, is I have a 7th gen i7, and Windows 11 does not support, unless you use one of those hacks, but it needs Series 8 and above CPUs in order to work, which is a bummer. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, that's right. But uh, one another thing to watch out for, Windows 11, I'm using it right now. Look, here's one that's been running for months. Uh, without any problem, uh, plugged in. That, that was a quieter three running Windows 11. A thing you got to watch out for is uh, if you're upgrading your own Windows from 10 to 11, and if you're getting a new computer, you know, originally I said this little F9 computer that comes with Windows 11 on it, it's tiny and it has tons of ports and quad core, 16 gigs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, th I found it to be problematic and not as good as the Melee Quieters 3 because it could, couldn't handle it as many videos. But I let it sit for about three days and it downloaded all the updates to Windows 11. And anytime you get a new system or install an update, it takes a while uh, for the CPU and for Windows Update to find all the pieces that it needs for your collection of interfaces, you know, your collection of chips and programs and so on. And so it will constantly be updating itself, which is the thing that Jonas talked about yesterday with running PlayoutB on Windows. Uh, he found some of these smaller NUCs to be 100, you know, you get them out of the box and there's 100% usage of the CPU. Well, that 100% usage is Windows Update working in the background to download the 17 different updates that have happened since that uh, image of Windows 11 was put on your machine. So if you download an image of Windows 11 to update it, be, uh, you know, just know that it's going to take about a day or so for it to get all of its updates installed. And it's going to be very sluggish and very slow in performance. And some things may not work for the first couple of days, but let it keep doing updates over and over again until you run Windows Update and it says you're up to date. No, no, no updates needed. Then it should run fine and should be very stable. So just a warning. 
Courtney just just defined why I use PCs on the very low end and PCs on the very high end and not so much in the middle. <laughs> Go ahead, Jason. There is no scenario where an in-place upgrade on a PC or really even on a Mac is a good idea for a production pipeline. My main problem with Windows 11 really comes back to the way that Microsoft creates these new um, operating systems. They do it from the veneer out instead of from the core stuff, um, you know, to the most superficial stuff. And um, what what John's talking about is uh, TPM 2.0, Trusted Platform Module, again, in theory, has a lot of really great ideas. And then, as usual, Microsoft does this wonderful little thing where they, they, they immediately then contradict themselves. And you can look up very quickly how to just do one quick reg edit and, oh, yeah, trusted platform module. No, you can turn that off if you know how to type reg edit. Next question. Next question comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Robert Green, can you tell us about your journey in the industry? Robert? Well, hi. Yes, that's me. We started, um, started out as an intern. So I was uh, in college taking communication courses and some vocational courses for uh, television production and worked at a local TV station well-known here in Los Angeles, ripping scripts as an intern, running, just doing any old oddball things. And during my downtime, I asked lots of questions and hung out with the chief editor and eventually he gave me, let me, shove me in a room with a stack of tapes and a script back in the 90s and, you know, working a, on a convergence editing system and put packages together and practiced and learned on my own for a little bit. And then he evaluated me and uh, kind of guided me a bit. And then eventually uh, one of our editors had a, an emergency and they called me in and all of a sudden I'm editing the 10 o'clock news. And then from there I became a freelance videotape editor. Uh, down the line, I did videotape editing at a few different places and eventually uh, got pulled into another room they called the clown car, which was an online editing room that they turned into a live control room for quick sports updates. And they threw me in as a tape operator and then I, that's how I got into the tape op job. And eventually that led into doing EVS, which I do today, which is the the well-known sports uh, slow-mo playback system that everyone uses in major sports. And I do it for a TV studio now and do playback and records and editing with this really neat system. That's awesome. It's good. It's good for people to know your background there. So they know you're, you're, you're still a little new to our, to our panel. So now you know that when you see Robert here, there's some deep, a deep well of knowledge in that broadcast area. So, so um, definitely feel free to ask those questions. Next question. Ronnie Hofsoy in Tromsø, Norway is up next. DJI Transmission has launched with O3, including triple band seamless frequency hopping, promising 20,000 uh, 20, feet or a six kilometer range and including return audio, metadata and time code. It's got a multi-channel receiver to match multiple transmitters. It's got HDMI and SDI. Sounds pretty awesome. Discuss. Go, J Go Jason. Looks pretty cool. It uh, was announced about 48 hours ago, so I don't think anyone has any hands-on experience for this one. Yeah, it's about, and it looks like about $2,500 or $2,700 or something like that, so it's a really competitive price. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I think that price is for a transmitter and receiver. Previously, they had a transmitter only for about 1000 1100 bucks. 
right. you could get that worked with their built-in uh, monitor that had a receiver built into it for handheld uh, reception, uh, primarily for drone work. But now they have standalone receivers that have SDI out on them, uh, which is cool because you can plug them into any monitor. I have seen a couple of YouTube uh, demos from the early adopters that were out there testing it uh, in Europe somewhere. And um, it was pretty good. It is. It will do pretty long distances. Maybe the six-kilometer range is going to be line of sight only. So you can't have anything in between you and the uh, transmitter uh, to receive at that range. But it is pretty good at going through walls. Uh, the guy tested it in indoors uh, between rooms and did not have any dropout. So it doesn't necessarily have to be line of sight uh, for shorter distances up to, you know, about 100 feet or so. Uh, it's pr really stable and uh, really, really low latency. So it's very low latency uh, and very stable. So it looks great for uh, monitoring. You know, it's going to compete with uh, Hollyland and the uh, the other high-end uh, transmitters uh, from Teradek, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how they how they compare. the um, the 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 big thing is is that as as Courtney said, you know, getting into um, the distance, GGI has had to handle really long distances for a long time because of the drones, and so as a result, I think that they've just really tuned this to a different level because they're playing a different game. Um, where I think these could be really useful is obviously coverage like we've been doing, but also um, like high school and college football oftentimes don't have the budgets to put in the really big um, systems that are used by the NFL. Um, but being able to put these transmitters kind of up high on the, you know, on the, you know, somewhere up on the tower and then being able to cover the entire football uh, space, whether that's uh, European football or American football uh, would be really, really useful. And I think that you're, I think they're going to do really well with these. Go ahead, Courtney. The other thing that's handy about them, a lot of these uh, are point to point transmitter receivers are just one to one. And, but this one has a broadcast mode where you can put up uh, up to eight or nine receivers onto one transmitter so that you can have multiple people for monitoring on the set if you need, you know, um, you know, makeup, hair and makeup needs to watch and the mother of the kid needs to watch yeah. and the producers need to watch. You can just use one transmitter and multiple receivers. Without yeah, and the other thing we use those small... The other way we use multiple receivers is when you're changing um, spaces. So let's say you're going out of the um, you're going out of the football field into the locker room and you're going to follow everybody as they're walking through there. Well, I need a receiver on one part of the football field, maybe a receiver at the entrance, another receiver in the hallway, another receiver, you know, in the locker room or near the locker room where they're going, because otherwise they're going to get cut off. As Courtney said, six kilometers, but not not through uh, rebar. So so you're able to um, get you're able to follow that through. And what'll happen is you'll be sitting on your switcher and you'll see, you'll see, suddenly you'll see both signals. And then at some point you can figure out, okay, I'm going to cut to one, you know, from one signal to the other, or I'm going to cut away and come back to the new signal. The reason you oftentimes don't jump from signal to signal is even though that the, even though the latency should be the same, oftentimes you might see a little bump as you go between them. So you'll cut to something, you know, out there and then you'll cut back in and you'll now be in the new transmitter. Um, and we do that a lot with, with uh, transmission systems uh, to, to build multi zone systems so that a camera can seem relatively seamlessly go between them. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from Peter Belbin again in Houston, Texas. Peter says, this time, if considering the FX30 as a webcam, which has an APS-C sensor, would the Alpha 7C be a better alternative for shallow depth of field since it has a full-size sensor? Yes. 
<laughs> full, I mean, the full size sensor is going to get is going to give you shorter depth of field. This is about as short a depth of field on. I have the FX thirty here. This is the shortest depth of field this is going to give me, um, and I've got a background that's pretty far back there. So, uh, so this is about as good as it gets with this camera. I'm on. I'm at aperture one point four. Um, I am on a, on on this uh, FX thirty, and the this would be twice as blurry. Now, one would argue that it might be too blurry at that point. It just looks like I got zoom blur on or something like that. So. But the advantage is, is that one of the things I've been resisting, I've been getting prime lenses for this camera. I've been resisting going to 2.8 because it makes everything a little bit more sharp. Behind me, if I was using a full frame sensor like a like a um, like the Alpha 7C, I would have um, uh, I would be able to put a 2.8 sensor. Uh, so that means all the zoom lenses that I'd want, I can put those on there and I have the same uh, depth of field that I have here. So um, there's definitely definitely an advantage to the to the full frame. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, uh, wonders, is Shure's BLX14SM31 UHF wireless microphone system fitness and the fitness headset mic single channel H9 band suitable for a Zoom meeting? And he's got a link to the product there. Go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I've used these uh, these headset mics. They're they're good. Again, it, it depends what you want to use it for. If you need a headset, you're doing yoga instruction or some kind of fitness. They work really well. They sound fine. I mean, we've talked about these types of head-worn mics a lot before on this show. They don't really have a lot of low-end sound quality. They're fine. Just remember, it is just a microphone, so you'll need some in-ears in order to hear people on Zoom. Good, Courtney. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, you mentioned part of that. If you're just doing a Zoom meeting and you're not doing a fitness show or something where the talent has to be moving around with the microphone, uh, don't use a wireless mic at all. Just use a wired mic because it's more stable. You don't have to worry about the batteries running out. You don't have to worry about transmission issues or any of the multiple other things, other problems you're going to run into with a wireless mic system. For Zoom meetings, you could just take that same uh, microphone and plug it into a transformer and run it into a mixer wired if you're sitting at a table good bill the one time where i go with something like a fitness mic is in a really loud environment too if you have to run and gun and you have to go into some place that is hugely noisy, putting one of those aerobics type mics or something on a boom that is right next to the corner of your mouth you're leveraging the inverse square principle to get the maximum amount of signal to noise ratio so that your voice overpowers the sound of the room i did uh, that approach entirely at a dog food factory once upon a time the place was so loud that you had to wear ear protection uh for, to maintain OSHA regulations and I got good quality audio from the people who were talking from the floor of that by using that trick so if signal to noise ratio is a big deal and you've got a noisy environment these close horn microphones can be really useful I just want to know if you can get rid of the orange. It's orange. I was like, why would you make your thing orange? Like, I was like, I, I, I literally, no matter how good the mic is, I wouldn't buy a mic that it was orange. Uh, Colored next by Gatorade. Yeah, exactly. Uh, next question. Nathan Cashin in Oregon City. For All-Star Games, MLS does a highlight video from the ref's perspective during the action. Could this become an option for viewers on Apple TV? And he's got a link to it. Go ahead, Jason. There's nothing Apple won't try in, you know, in service of making these these games and the coverage better. And uh, I, for one, am all for it. I love the way that they're they're, they're pursuing this. Uh, I don't really care for MLS. That doesn't mean that, th you know, the way that they're doing these things from a systematic approach isn't going to pay dividends very, very quickly.
I think it's a really interesting um, uh, concept of seeing, I think it's hard when you see the plays getting called, like how, why they're making those calls. And I think that it's a really interesting thing to be able to see what the, you know, what the deci- where the decision was and what they actually could see. It, I'm always amazed that they can get any of the calls right. Sometimes they don't. <laughs> but 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 I, I think that it's really hard because there's so many moving parts. Um, so I think seeing those those cams, I mean, I, I think they're looking at, um, we're going to see a huge explosion in what we see from the field. Um, I've seen some stuff where we're, they're testing, basically, you're being able to go down and get the quarterback's view of it. And it's a, you know, so you can see they have little cameras. They're doing it in college tests right now, but you have a little camera on the front of the, on the front of the helmet. And so you get to see it and you get to see the the quarterback go through his progression, which is why they won't do it in the NFL probably anytime soon. <laughs> but you can see the quarterback go through it, through their progression of they, they see this, they see this. And you, and you get to also see the, the first test that I saw, you get to see why it's so important that quarterbacks are so tall is because they had a shorter quarterback back there and you couldn't see anything. Like, like anything, you know, the, there's like five yards behind the line that you didn't feel like he could see at all um, when the, when the lineman stood up. So it was, um, so it's a really interesting puzzle. Next question. Samuel Nordvik's back from Norway. Does publishing YouTube videos to YouTube podcast playlists have any real advantages at this point in time? Well, I think that the, the big advantage is it'll play like a long set of podcasts. Um, and, and it also, uh, I think it gets promoted a little bit better right now at YouTube. I mean, YouTube is is definitely trying to build that behavior. So there's definitely uh, your chances of getting more virality, both with shorts and podcasts. Those are places where if you're going to, if, if all things are equal, you're probably going to get more reach uh, if you um, produce a podcast in there. So so it's probably worth it. And you don't only really have to do a lot other than to, 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 to define it as a podcast and put it in a playlist. So I would, I don't think you have anything to lose by putting it in there. Um, I think that people who get that podcast are expecting it to be kind of like a podcast, um, you know, so not like a, just a short or some kind of random video. So that's the only thing to kind of uh, think about there. Quick reminder that, of course, you can ask questions throughout the hour. Um, so ask those questions now. First hour, ge- general questions every single day. Um, and then the second hour is usually something we'll spend a little bit more time on. Today, we're talking about Seagraph and how we did it. And so we'll talk about that a little bit in a couple minutes. Uh, but if you have questions about either, go ahead and throw those in. Let's go to the next question. John Bontrager says, does anyone have a favorite short video clip that they use to explain AI and ML, that's artificial intelligence and machine learning for somebody who's been under a rock, to a group of adults? Go ahead, John. So th- this is a tough one because that's a lot of information in a short video, for especially for adults. Uh, YouTube has a channel called Simply Learn, one word with an I instead of a Y, simply. Um, or I can send you my last presentation, which is about 40 minutes. You can watch it on 2X and get it down to 20 minutes. So hit me up in Discord. I'll send, it, send you <laughs> a link. That's good. You gotta, we we got to publish that somewhere, John, so we can, yeah. we can, we can see it. Why don't, it. It's up on YouTube. I'm doing another presentation for the Las Vegas Rotary on the 31st, and that one's streamed. Well, what we should do, though, is we should get the video. We should have you on for a second hour just to do Q&A, but publish the video beforehand. That's the model that I'm trying to get to with the second hours eventually is that here's a bunch of videos to watch or here's a video to watch. And then we're going to do a Q&A so that people can watch the video first. That way, the presentation, your presentation will be very minimal during the hour based on stuff we've already talked about so that the, that the it's really a conversation. So let's, I'll we'll send talk about it to that. I'll send it to you. Okay, sounds good. Courtney? There's a guy named, I think Matt Wolf, I think is his name, and he has a, a website called futuretools.com. Uh, AI, is that it? IO. Uh, IO, not IO, thank you. 
And it has a collection of all the latest AI news and articles, and you'll find some good explainers on here. Be careful because you go on YouTube, there's a ton of these guys that do these explainer videos that are just, you know, they have a subscription to the pond or some type of uh, stock video supplier, and they will cut together an a, a chat GPT explanation of AI and cut together some semi-relevant images, but mostly not relevant images together to when they're doing the explanation, which usually is more distracting than informative. So be careful about those. If you're seeing that, if they're explaining something and they're showing you pictures of, you know, people working at cash registers from the seventies, then you know, okay, this is a guy that just has a subscription to the pond and has assembled a bunch of uh, stock footage here to try and explain what they're talking about, but it's not necessarily related to the explanation that chat GPT came up with. Watch John's uh, explanation. It's probably a lot better. Good, Bill. Absolutely going to support that. You know, I, people know that I've been doing some work in the audiobook space, and I can't tell you the number of audiobooks that have come through in the last six months uh, trying to leverage this. And as I look at the auditions and things like that, I, in about two paragraphs ago, this person has no clue what they're talking about. They're just trying to capitalize on the fact that this is the latest buzzword. So find trusted sources to get your information about the stuff like John. When we make fun of the answers from ChatGPT, just remember what we just talked about. All the people making videos on uh, giving us listicles on Twitter or X or whatever and and posting stuff on YouTube are not that much more accurate than ChatGPT. Uh, next question. Uh, next one's from Alexander Knight here on the panel from Vancouver, British Columbia. Alex, did you tweak your color profile on your Sony FX30? Your skin tone looks a bit warmer. Looks nice. Thanks. Um, yeah. So, so yesterday, what happened was is that we were trying to figure. I had, you know, so when I go on the road, the problem is I'm using this as a production camera, and I'm constantly changing everything. And then my hotel room was a nightmare as far as I, was, I just tweaked all the colors and everything else to get it so that it looked normal. Um, and the hard part is is that, that that is the one downside of the both the 12K, which I was using at one point for one of the shows, and the and this uh, camera is that. Uh, both of them, I can't shade from the switcher. So it's really hard to kind of like, you can't, you got to make decisions about them. Um, and then you, you really have very limited access to the controls. And so, um, so what happened is so I was tweaking all of those things. And then when we shot multi-camera, which we'll talk about in the next hour, I was trying to match what um, Cassie had on her camera. She had an FX3 that we used as the main camera, and this was the second camera. And so she's like, oh, I'm using 709. So we just switched to 709. Um, then when we got back, we were like, well, this looks like log. And I was like, no, it's 709. And I forgot that the way this camp comes out of the box is what they call 709-800X. And I, that's just a big, it's a, it's a, uh, I think it's an 800X of the saturation from whatever Sony considers 709, which is a pretty loggy look. So, um, so anyway, so I think that, it, so, um, so anyway, so I didn't have, I had it set to seven. I guess, so I kept on like, Mickey was like, your color's off. And I'm, I'm like, I don't, I'm at 709. I don't know. I don't know how to fix this right now. And so, um, and so I went in and you'll see in the middle of the show yesterday, I think between hours, I went from 709 to 700, 709, 800X. Um, and, uh, and so, and then I found it there. So I had had, I have to admit that I had about three hours of sleep yesterday cause I got in really late. And so I was a little bit like, I can't figure this out before the show. And so, so the, um, uh, so I, uh, 
Um, so anyway, so that that's what happened there. So the color's back to where it was close up before. I'm told that it feels a little too saturated. So we're going to play with that a little bit. But um, but it's definitely better than it was in the first hour of last week. And all of last week, I I have to, I will say that I miss my, my 6K when I go traveling because the inability to do fine tuning on the fly while you're sitting there uh, is really nice. And none of the tools are really great for I, any camera outside of, I mean, you really realize how magical the ATEM connection to the cameras is when you are traveling, when you have to make these tweaks. And I just can't do it right now. It's a real bummer. Um, yeah, go ahead, uh, Alex. I know Sony hasn't had the greatest history for having the most intuitive menus, but on this FX3, because I know it is a newer camera, are you finding the design of the menus a little bit better than the older cameras? Or, are you, uh, or is it still kind of weird to navigate? It's better. <laughs> so, so, I mean, now you got to get like when I, when I was, uh, well, I owned so many Sony cameras. I had a 950, I had a bunch of EX1s, EX3s. I had all these Sony cameras and I was used to this really cryptic going up and down and moving around and everything else. The um, the Sony, um, so so that, I was kind of used to that process. And when Blackmagic came out, admittedly, when they had the color correction process on the switchers, I'm used to using paint boxes. And I was like, how can you even think about matching two cameras without R minus G and G minus R and B minus R? You know, like I'm used to like, that's how you do this. And how can I, and, but very quickly, I, I realized that Blackmagic's approach was way better. The Blackmagic interfaces are so much better than everybody else's that it's not, it's kind of, you know, like it's not, they're not in the same playing field as everybody else. You know, everybody else has got everything that's on this weird cryptic little screen and it's goofy. And so I've gotten used to where the stuff is in Sony. It's definitely significantly better than Canon, which is a, just a rolling disaster. I mean, like the Canon interfaces is just, I mean, they just, I can't use their camera. Like I will not use a Canon camera, the Canon film cameras, because I hate the interface so much that I just want to rip my eyes out. Anyway, so, um, so the, uh, um, so Canon has screwed it up the most. Um, Panasonic's kind of in the middle. I think Sony's probably got made the biggest improvement. I will say that the, I wish that there was, if there was an iPad control for the way that we see them for the FR7s for all their cameras, wow. Like the FR7 uh, iPad app or iPad window or whatever is so good. Um, so, so I think that, that I'd love to see more of that. Um, you know, and so hopefully Sony's kind of going that direction. Yeah, go ahead, John. So I noticed that you looked better on Twit than you did at, on Office Hours that day with the 12K. Your color looked a little bit warmer. Um, different time of day yeah when i connected my 12k here the only thing i could get it to look decent was i had to load a custom lot and then it looked okay it still didn't look as good as my sony does yeah i have to you know one of the things i realized and i know this will sound crazy but i have to um improve my ability to do lots quickly and you know and, and really knock them out quickly and the problem is i don't have a really color accurate monitor but I, I realized what i can do is if i opened up if i just have an image that i really like of me and then i have it on the same screen i can always match the two of those together i don't need to have a color correct monitor i kept on thinking i need a color correct monitor i, can, I was like no i just need a reference you know, i just need a reference to get to the same place um in those in those things and so so what i'm one of my little projects for the next couple um uh, weeks is to get good at be basically being able to very quickly pull a pull a frame off of a camera, throw it into Resolve, open it up, um, look at my reference thing, match my reference, throw it back, you know, export a three three D LUT and put it back into the camera to get me really close. So literally, my goal is is that fifteen minutes or maybe a half an hour before the show, I can literally match the match the LUT that I want. 
and build it. And, and it's not like, a, like right now it's still like, I don't trust myself enough. So I'm like, Charles, <laughs> can you help me? And, and so, um, and uh, so I think that that's my next step is to, is to do the color, get so good at LUTs that I can just turn them over really fast. And that has a whole bunch of benefits, you know, to, to be able to turn, do faster turn LUTs on a laptop and potentially, I think you can open the color window now on the iPad app. I think there's a hack for it if there if it isn't totally open. So you could theoretically do it in the iPad and do it. You know, I'm going to try to figure that out because the iPad I actually trust the monitor. I mean, I trust the screen. So um, we'll, we'll we'll keep talking about that. If we fi- if I figure it out, there'll be a second hour. We'll, we'll all talk about how we do it. Next question. Tony Mobley, Noonan, Georgia. Up next, Alex. If you have returned home, please compare your home and mobile setups for us. Thanks. Oh, my home, my home setup is very nice. I'm very, I missed it. <laughs> so I bought my, my, um, my, the, the sec, especially the second hotel that we were staying in uh, for Seagraph. I was, uh, had a laptop on a stand. It's one little screen. I've got, I, the second, the second hotel room was like a postage stamp. And so it was, I was like in a, a thing like three feet wide, like the little shoot. Um, and, uh, I had I, I didn't have any tables, so I had to stack all my Pelican cases on top of each other to put it to get it to the right position. So it was not not a great experience, and I just I think by the end of the week I was really ready to go home. So now I'm I, now I've got lots of screens, and I've got my setup, and I hit my watch, and all the lights turn on, and you know all that stuff. So I, I'm I'm happy to be home. <laughs> it was a very productive week. I mean, I got to meet new people. We did a bunch of things that's going to affect office hours, like stuff next year in office hours. It's gonna be cool. Um, anyway, so lots of made lots of uh, good contacts and so on and so forth. But but it was I, I usually by the time I get home, I'm ready to be home. Uh, next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. Up next, OpenAI's GPT bot will scrape your website to train its AI. Hmm. Unless you opt out and the web crawler dramatically expands the amount of data, OpenAI's models will train on. Comment. Go ahead, Alex. Well, I have no problems with this because like search engines, I mean, none of this stuff works well unless you train it on data. And, you know, search engines crawl your website as they are now. So if you're if that's something that you're concerned about, you're either going to put it behind some kind of login screen or you're going to explicitly opt out of it. So I don't have an issue with this. Go, John. Alexander's right on the right on the money. Google's been been uh scraping all of your websites for for years um what happened was when bard was released bard google integrated their their web data into the interface of bard so they leapfrogged OpenAI. OpenAI added the plugin for for microsoft bing uh which is super clunky it's really clunky i have it installed and it's not working great so now they just came out with gpt bot to do the scraping to integrate it into GPT, probably five. But of course, just like with Google, you can you can set it up in your HTML so it won't scrape your sites. No big deal. Go ahead, Courtney. And if you're hoping to correct some wrong information that uh, ChatGPT has, because you're the only one that has the right information, this may not work for you because it's still statistically operated, the large language models. So unless the stuff that's on your website that you agree to let them scrape uh, is duplicated elsewhere, many places, it's not going to statistically show up. So it may not show up unless it hallucinates sometimes. Go, Jason. 
This is overblown. I mean, my first thought is, so what? Like, so what? It's it's more like, you know, you're not special. You're not important. Your website and its perfect little copy is is like not under threat of anything whatsoever. In this case, it's it has an equal chance of understanding how to correctly use an Oxford comma. It doesn't really care what you have to say. That's 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 kind of missing the point. Yeah, I think that part of it is is that it, it is it, it allows ChatGPT to become current. You know, so now it can be looking at everything currently and, and bring you up to date. So it's no longer like this is only until this time. So it's allowing to have current events. It is also basically by letting you turn it off. They're like, hey, you can you could always turn it off, but it's an opt out, not an opt in. So what that means is that if you're not paying attention, it's just going to start grabbing everything. <laughs> like so, so anybody who's not paying attention to the data is going to deliver. But that's why they set it up as that way is that they're telling people, hey, it's Hey, we let you, you know, we're not forcing you to, to do anything. You can always turn it off from your website. We can always, you can always, but you have to be savvy to do that. Um, as you know, otherwise it's going to keep grabbing all that data. Um, and I think that's fine. Next question. Tony Mobley, Newton in Georgia. Back again. I have two M1 Mac minis and M1 MacBook Pro. Should they share an external hard drive or does the machine need a separate drive? I have two terabyte Samsung T7 drives. Go ahead, Jason. Well, Tony, it really just depends on what you're you're trying to do. You, you certainly could share them, for example, for a, a time machine backup. Just be sure to eject the drive, you know, assuming it has enough space for all three all three machines. If you're looking to share files, there are definitely better ways to do it, but there are far um, there are almost no cheaper ways to do it. So it's really just a matter of what you're after. Go ahead, Courtney. And if they're all sitting on the same local area network, you could get a network attached storage and uh, put an NVMe, a couple of NVMe drives in a network uh, NAS, a network attached storage, so that all of your computers could then access the data and store data on the network address storage. But bear in mind, it's going to be a lot slower than directly connecting those uh, those drives to your you know USB C port, uh, which will be much faster if they're NVMe drives for those, especially those two terabyte uh, uh, Samsungs. Next question. Next one comes from Michael Smith in Silverado, California. Warning on the SanDisk Extreme Portable SSD. Apparently, files suddenly disappear. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Jason. Never buy the cheapest version of anything, especially if it's your data, the most precious thing that you have. That's all I have to say. Uh, we've had trouble with these. So I'm, just, I'm saying, like, I don't, I don't, I don't. Uh, we I bought a bunch of them and we definitely have had some. Uh, the the one that is more problematic is that uh, with the SanDisks that I have, if you open if you start a computer if we start a Mac with one of these SanDisks plugged into it, the Mac will never. It took me a long time to figure out why my Mac was never getting to the desktop. And as soon as I unplugged the disk, it went right to it. <laughs> so 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 it's doing something. There's something that that SanDisk is doing that's all bad. So I do not buy these SanDisks. Um, go ahead, Courtney. Now you tell me. <laughs> Yesterday at Costco, I bought a SanDisk Extreme, uh, one terabyte uh, NVMe SSD. I don't know if it's the same one because I we, haven't we, looked. We at didn't it. know until recently. I mean, this was like this is it's pretty new data. Like I was like because it, it just happened a lot, like a week or two ago where I was like locking up my, you know, and no one asked the question before. But um, but I, it, just just a couple of weeks ago, it, it happened where it locked up my my system. I haven't used it yet, and I haven't used it on a Mac, so I've used I plugged it into the PC just to test it, test the transfer speeds. It's very fast uh, over USB-C, 
It's the one that looks like it has a little carabiner on the end of it. I don't know if that's the same. That's one the one. Yeah, that's the the evil one. Darn! <laughs> I've already thrown away the packaging. I can't take it back to Costco. I just bought it yesterday. Just unwrapped it last. This time. is why you buy things from Amazon because they tell you that not only do they not require the packaging, they tell you not to put it back in the packaging. Go ahead, uh, John. All uh, right, this is a new feature designed for politicians. <laughs> <laughs> I saved it on purpose. Go ahead, Bill. Uh, this has been rattling through the news groups the last 48 hours, and I guess a lot of people are having problems, and the biggest part of the problem is that it's catastrophic. Uh, when this circumstance hits you, your data just is gone, and no one's found a way that I've read on any of those discussion groups to recover it. So it's pretty pretty nasty. I'd avoid these for a while if you can. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, and I wonder if they're using that encryption program that comes on it. It comes with their SanDisk encrypt, encrypt, which I never use, uh, which is their uh, BitLocker, you know, basically data encryption tool. And I wonder if people are using that, and I wonder if the bugs in the data encryptor or if it's just storing stuff directly to the hard drive without using their data encryption. I'll have to read up on this and see. But now it's going on the shelf. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, along those lines, um, I mean, I think if you have a defect, by the way, Sam's will take, in my experience, just about anything back. Um, but it's not It's not them. It's, it is taking it back to Costco is the problem. It's not, it's not, it's not a SanDisk. It's like dealing with the return. No, no, I said Sam's, like Sam's Club. I thought that's oh, where Sam's. you bought it. I thought, did you get oh, it at Sam's Club, Club or Costco? Oh, Costco. Yeah. And you're, you got to stand in line for half an hour. My time's worth more than the $49 or $39, whatever it costs. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the the, um, the the problem really is with, uh, uh, the, I mean, I have to admit that I thought that that Amazon was crazy when I was like, when you make it so easy for people to take stuff back, they're going to take stuff back all the time. But what it did is it means that I am extremely resistant to buying something outside of Amazon because I can take anything back to uh, um Whole Foods. <laughs> like I know, like I don't know. You know, like all I got to do is go. To, I'm going to go get some. I'm going to go get some lettuce, and I'm going to drop off my return. And it made me very, very like. If anything's on Amazon, I just buy it on Amazon because I don't want to. I don't want to deal I, I, anything more than I'm going to drop. I'm going to fill this thing out, and I'm going to drop it off at a store that I already go to. I mean, it is a devastating business model. I have to say. At first, I thought it was a, the dumbest thing I'd ever seen because now I take things back a lot more, more than I used to. Because it used to be like oh, I got to find a box and I got to do a thing. Now I just drop it off. Um, it's a completely different setup. Go ahead, Chris. Is this the one? Yeah, that's the one. I don't know. Yeah, there might be a just, lot of different versions, but th that's the one that we're trying to not use anymore. Is there a specific like size to be afraid of? Uh, we have the two gig ones that are. That's the ones that we're that are making. Uh, making us two unhappy. gigs or two terabytes. I'm oh, sorry, two terabytes. Yeah, two gigs. Oh. Yeah, we got the two, two gigs ones. <laughs> Maybe you should have bought a bigger on one, Alex. I'm just gonna. Exactly. I'm just guessing. Yeah, we bought one uh, a couple of weeks ago. We had a crew down somewhere, and they brought me the data back, and uh, I got the data off it, and then I just stuck it in the drawer, where editor drives go to die. <laughs> Actually, I think I have a couple of your drives, Alex. I'll bring them by. <laughs> I think you probably do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, Jason. Um, so how does this Whole Foods return thing work? I've seen it too. And in fact, they keep making it harder to like get your money back on a Visa card instead of like, you know, Amazon credit. Um, it, do you go to customer service? Is that how it produce. works? Uh, it off produce. Produce. You know, I don't know. I don't know what it's like everywhere in my, in my 
one, you literally, it's right inside the door. Like you literally walk in and inside the door, there's a um, thing and, and you just, you, you, so what you do is you, you say, I want to return say, it. Hello, Alex. That's freaky. You say, I want to return something. It gives you a little code that you, that I save to my notes, like I'm, my next whole food, whatever I, I, you know, but, but it has a little code. And then you walk in and you stare aimlessly. You walk over to the place where you have to do it. And you look over like a little puppy dog. You go like this. Like, I'm here. And someone looks over at you very quickly and walks over and scans your little thing and you hand it to them and they throw it in a box. And then you walk and then you go back to shopping. And so it's right when you come in and it's really easy and it is the most devastating thing. I mean, like once I did it the first time, I just changed the way I shopped. <laughs> like it was, you know, so anyway, so for buying electronics, um, you know, a lot of times when I say I'm testing things, I just buy them and then see how they turn out. I still end up with a bunch of them. <laughs> so I buy a lot of stuff from Amazon. All right, we are starting late for our second hour. Um, I was having trouble. If you're wondering why we started late, because we're trying to start on time, is I was having trouble with something on the back end on my computer because uh, I've just gotten back and I was trying to fix it before this hour. <laughs> so it's, it's like I worked around it. Um, anyway, so that's why we, I let, I let the, the hour run over a little bit. So we're talking about Seagraph. And so we, we have been doing these, this event coverage. And this is really more less about Seagraph, as I said before, and more about CGRAP, what our event coverage and how we're covering these events. Um, and so, so I think that what we're going to do is describe a little bit about how we're doing it. We have two different systems that we're, or two different ways that we're covering these events. Um, and so one, one part of it is, is that we've now started to experiment with um, multi-camera. Um, so we have uh, the live view is now set up for up to four. And, and there was an interesting thing. I was afraid that it was going to subdivide the four inputs into only 20 megs a second, which is what it's, what it currently kind of jumps to. But as you add cameras, it adds bandwidth. <laughs> so so it, it, it just keeps going, going up, uh, which is an important note there. But anyway, so we've been um, kind of working on this and I'll show you a little bit of a, some slides here in a second. Um, but the, uh, so one of the things we're looking at and probably why, why are we doing this? Like, why are we spending all this energy? Cause it's a lot of energy, it's money, it's effort. I'll make a, I'll, I'll list off who all worked on this. Uh, we had, I believe, um, I think I have the data here. Um, Brian sent it to me. Um, that um, uh, just to kind of give you a sense of it, uh, we had, uh, so for this show, now most of these shows, we're trying to take this to an entirely different level. We're not incrementally making coverage better. Now, I'm not saying that we're doing that yet, but I'm saying that we're playing this really heavy game of how do we really take this up a notch. Um, so here's the Seagraph data. Um, we had 22 crew members from six countries working on this project. Um, we had uh, two, we did two and a half hours of live streaming over two days, and we covered 20 exhibitors. Um, we had one HDR test that was relatively short. Um, we had seven weeks of prep time and eight meetings to kind of get things ready to go. So that's kind of what we're doing there. But you want to look at that that crew. You know, the crew is not something. Usually, it's like a person or two people that went to the. Um, you know, that went to the thing and I got the, oh, I got the wrong somehow. Let's see here. Oh, that's the, sorry, hold on. Let me get you the, um, to give you a sense of it, you know, so for hosts and panelists, so the two hosts we had were Grant, uh, Grant Whitehead and Bill Davis, um, Courtney being another panelist on, on the, uh, on the show, kind of pro providing that. I, it's funny for me, I didn't know how many people were on the panel, but of course we were moving that time around and it's in the middle of the day. So it was, it was hard and that's totally fine. Um, the field team was myself and Nick Justishin, who were, we were doing talent. 
um, and I, which I think made a huge difference. And by the way, not only can you ask questions here, but give us your comments. Let us know what you think. Same thing with uh, right after I finish this for the panelists to tell us what they think, but definitely throw in what, what did you think? What did you like? What are your questions? Go ahead and throw those in. Um, uh, Rajan uh, Shandil and Cassie Ellis uh, were, uh, Rajan was our field producer and he of course did an amazing job. He always does. Amazing. Um, Cassie Ellis, uh, Peter Rosato, and Robert Green were our uh, camera operators, just kind of pressed into action. Um, uh, and, Car- and Carmi, of course, was our, our runner. Carmi, Carmi's the magic person that just shows up and just makes things happen. So there's just random things happening. We Oh, we're missing a piece and suddenly it appears. There's things, you know, he's, he's, I, I know we called Carmi the the runner, but he's really the magician, like, or the, you know, just kind of like, I don't know, the, you know, he just kind of fixes lots of things around you. Uh, he, he always look, looks like he's not doing anything. And then he's always, but all this magical stuff is happening. Um, anyway, uh, Brian Shand, of course, was uh, the online producer. And this is one of the things we will not start one of these shows without an online producer and an, and a, uh, a field producer. So we have to have those. We've, I've decided you just have to have somebody that's accountable on the ground and someone that's accountable on, on the, to, to get off the ground. Um, and so Brian did, of course, an amazing job. JJ McKenna was the EIC, making sure that everything was working together, which was no small thing in the back end. Um, Kevin Hansen was our engineer. So he's making sure that all the hardware does what it needs to do. Um, Mickey Makachor is our A1. And um, we just have to remember that it was all through the middle of the night for Mickey. <laughs> so all of these setups and all these processes, uh, I'm sure that Mickey's going to be sleeping most of the weekend to try to catch back up again. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Kristen o- Osterkamp and Michael Smith were our TDs. And remember, Kristen, Michael, I'm not sure, Michael, is Michael in, I want to say, I don't know, I don't have it in his head. I know that uh, Kirsten is in in Germany. So. Germany, um, yeah. Uh, Dave Troutman um, and Laura Thompson were our question managers, managing those questions coming in, which was super key. Um, uh, Alan Scott was our uh, uh, um, QC. Uh, Brian Osterhot uh, was um, the R- 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 RFI. So, you know, um, you know, room for improvement. So he's keeping track of that. Uh, Keith Harrison and, um, and Kyle Hammond were our PSCs. And so, so that's the team, you know, that's putting all this stuff together and making this all work. And uh, it is, you know, it, it really takes that to do that. And I think that, it, and we're getting better at it. Um, you know, we're still, you know, work in progress. Now, the reason that we're doing all of this, of course, is so that, you know, there's a lot of people around the world. These are great little events and they show all the new features and they show all the new things that are coming out. But 99.99999% of the world doesn't get to see that. They can't get the visas. They can't get the money. They can't get the time. They can't get all these other things. And so they're all excluded from that. And our goal is to find a way to provide more and more coverage. Right now, it's, you know, it's a little bit of coverage. It's two and a half hours. In the beginning, it was one hour or two hours. And then we've tried four hours. That's brutal. Um, so we're, we're experimenting with these different formats. And so sometimes it's, it's highly organized. Sometimes you know, people can tell us what they think of that. Um, but it's highly organized. This is a little bit more of a free-flowing thing. And what we did, what we really experimented here was two experts that really knew most of the boat, what most of the booths do, just walking around and talking and sometimes grabbing someone from the booth unexpectedly and, and talking to them about it. So it was a, it was a much more free flowing um, way that we kind of approached it there. I'll show you a little bit about, I'll show you a little of the, um, well, and to, and to give you kind of a sense of, um, of what we, what we were doing there. Um, let's see if I can uh, do this here. So if you think about, um, oh, that didn't work, did it? Well, if you, Sorry, this is uh, 
I'm trying something new and it didn't work. There we go. So what you have is you have the live view here and then you have, uh, you know, your two cameras. And then in some cases we embedded onto the cameras. And in some cases we had a, uh, a Scorpio that we had the electrosonic mics to. And I'll show you pictures of this in a second. The, um, so what we did was the cameras in the first path went into the, into the live view and then the um, and then we didn't use the Scorpio. But when we used the Scorpio, we were sending the cameras to transmitters that were going into the Scorpio and then being embedded into a SDI signal, which then went into the live view um, to make that work for one of the cameras. And the other camera still went straight into the live view. That has to go to um, that live view. Sends it to San Rafael to our to our um, master control. That gets fed into Zoom. And it's also available, um, we can also make it available to YouTube. And for the for the HDR stream, we made it available, we went straight to YouTube, we didn't go through Zoom at all. So, and then we have to also figure out how we, one of the other challenges is we have to figure out how we have to build a two-way connection between Zoom and, uh, well, two-way connection between Zoom and here. So we were basically doing it two different ways. One is using Unity, so we just had Unity in our ear. And the other was to use, um, uh, to use the, the backhaul to live view. So one, this is an interesting little puzzle. Is it took us a little while to figure it out. The live view has two eighth-inch jacks on the, on the side of it. And what you can do is those eighth-inch jacks, we converted to XLR, put it into an IFB transmitter, and I'll show you the, the receivers that we had. So we were actually able to get up to three, we just have, because we have three receivers, but on the same frequency we see we have an IFB that everyone can just put in their ears and hear the panelists, which we didn't quite have set up before. The big advantage of that, we didn't use it on this one, but we've been having that whole, like, how do we have people at the booth talk to people in the panel? Now we have just a little box that we can pop on and we can just hand them the box and have them put an earpiece in. Um, and by the way, Tlaloc, if you're watching, we do have the earpieces that you sent from the last show <laughs> that showed up too late. Uh, we have those now. So we can put just pop them, pop, let them pop that into their ear. So it, it makes it a much simpler process there. So um, and then so let me uh, cut back to uh, let's see here. The um, so I'll show you a little bit of this and we're going to go to the panel and then we'll go to your questions. Um, so here's kind of the setup here. You can see now Peter, uh, you know, uh, came in and he was, he was the trooper because we, we made him the, uh, the uh, we had him carry everything. So the last time we had everything on a cart, but getting through a, a, a denser area and so on and so forth was a little bit challenging. And we really wanted to have something that was a little bit more mobile. Um, and so, and Robert, if anytime you want to jump in or if you want to raise your hand in the, into that panel discussion, let me know. Um, so here's, here you can see the Scorpio here. Um, one of the, uh, the Scorpio bag anyway, this is a K-Tech bag for the Scorpio. One of the things that we added to it is we're not using the standard, I don't think I have a good picture of it, but we're not using the standard, you know, just like pouch holder. Um, I got a, it's a, it's a back brace that basically pull, it's a, it's a harness that pulls into that bag and it greatly distributes that, that weight to the rest of the back rather than just sitting on the shoulders. Of the, as soon as I picked it up it, at Cinegear, I was like, I can't use this. Like I can't, that's why we went to the cart was I was like, a, I thought, oh, I don't know if I need that, that shoulder rig. I did. So anyway, so that goes across the front. The live view is on the back. You'll see it on, on his backpack here um, in a second. Um, um, so the, um, but the, uh, so he's kind of, so then we have just a mobile person able to walk around and manage that, that wireless there. Um, let me, uh, let's see, make sure I'm sure I'm right app here. Um, so here is uh, us testing it. This is Raj and Cassie. Uh, Cassie was an incredible 
addition to the team, by the way. She she works in reality TV, and um, we're gonna be we're gonna be working with Cassie a lot more. <laughs> so so she was really amazing. Um, I have but, Cassie and Raj right here. And yeah, yeah. We were setting up at the hotel while uh, Alex was on Mac Break Weekly, so they were setting up a camera yeah. there. Yeah, and, and so and and they uh, they've been working together for a long time, so it made it really really good. And and she. So Cassie brought an FX3, so that we we ended up making that the main camera. So you have um, there's a couple of things here. Of course, you have the ter- the Teradek transmitter up here, um, and then we have uh, the um, these are our electrosonic uh, transmitters. So on the first day, we decided let's put the tra- the receivers. These are the these are the receivers. Let's put so here's our transmitter here at the end of the mic. So these are the mic plugs, and this is the the LM system that was talked about um, on. Uh, on Wednesday with Electrosonic when they were here. So we decided, let's take these Electrosonics and actually just plug them straight into the camera, embed them in the camera and have it go out as an embed. Um, the the challenge really that we decided by the second day we didn't do that is that it adds a lot of weight to the camera and it made it impossible for Cassie to pick it up. You know, so she couldn't really carry it, um, not she carry it, but she couldn't carry it and, and operate it because weight distributions all over the place and everything else. And, and, you know, so, so that was the challenge, you know, with that here, you can kind of see a front area here. So this is, um, you know, this, these are our transmitters here, you know, going into, into, this is a little piece that you add to the Sony camera to get the, get that in there. Um, and then here's our transmitter, but you kind of see, um, the, the basic setup down here of, of this, but you, you could pick it up and move it and set it back down, but it wasn't something that was mobile or as mobile. Um, and this is a Atomos um, monitor here so that she's looking at. It is key. Some of the other ones in the, in the past, we didn't have a separate monitor for the operator to see, and it was a little... It was a, not even a little, but it was a, it was a big problem. Um, batteries here. Batteries become the thing. Now, now Cassie had some Anton Bauer um, uh, batteries here. I used a bunch of the, I think you'll be able to see them later, but I used a bunch of the um, the small rig 99s because they, they have USB-C out as well as barrels. And if you put them onto their own um, mount, uh, you get another set of USB-Cs and, and, and D-taps and everything else. And so I, I use those um, uh so this is the smaller rig. So this is camera two, and there's Robert, Robert running this, the the camera two. And so this doesn't have all the audio, and it's a lot lighter. We got a monopod here, which we found really nice. So you can kind of pick it up and move it a lot faster. Um, so this is my little FX30. We've got a small rig rig on it. I when I buy cameras, I buy rigs. I, mean, I buy I buy um, you know um, a cage cage yeah i buy cages for every camera i buy i just buy them put the cage on i don't want to think about it later or try to figure out how i'm going to order it so there's the cage um and we just attach the transmitter right there's a screw mount on that cage so there's the the teradek transmitter um and then now robert was stuck with the small window um because we were trying to keep that one light um here you can see um this is the battery pack here so this is a little 99 and this is the this hooks on this this is a small rig you know slide on to the to the, um, uh, you know, to these um, uh, rails. And so we kept it along too much cable. So I'm going to work on making that, getting shorter ones. There's a couple things I, I got really sensitive to. Number one is I need that, I need this, the cables to be just the right length. And it's hard with HDMI because you can't just build them. Um, you have to buy, buy the right one. And I need that cable to be, it's so short. I had some short cables that were really heavy and they just, I feel like they're putting pressure on my, on my HDMI connection. So I was a little touchy about that. So anyway, that was our, that was our light rig. Um, this, these are the IFB receivers that we got from, uh, Electrosonic. 
Um, so the transmitter transmits out of the, it was basically in the, in the live view backpack and we just throw these on. They're, they're really easy to set up and use. Um, I was super happy. I mean, the happiest I've been with an IFB receiver ever. Um, so it was really, it was really nice. Um, I was very, this is, I have pieces of it. This is the, um, cable techniques make these and, and you can buy them when you buy them, you, you get them in a bag like this and you'll notice that my bag isn't, uh, opened yet. Oh, you, I can't, you can't see that right now, but if they cut to me for a second, you'll see, you can buy these cables in pieces and I didn't get them done yet. And so, uh, so what I did is I, I ordered them. There's a company called audio, uh, department and, um, audio department is known for not only doing, you can buy cables, but you can have them made. <laughs> so I just had them made. I said, can you make these cables for me? I came in on a Saturday and I said, can you make these cables? And I'll pick them up on Monday. And, um, cause I had not gotten them done before. I hadn't made the ones that I need to make. Sorry. Oh, I didn't hear, I didn't hear Mickey. You said something, but I didn't hear it. Um, the, uh, so anyway, the, uh, so the, what I, what they asked for is, um, uh, what they asked for here was the, um, uh, they asked me like, what are you putting them into a Scorpio? So they kind of know which direction things have to go, you know, so these go out in the right direction. They also asked like, how do you want, what, what color do you want your caps? And I, I hadn't thought about that. I was like, oh yeah, that'd be great. So I did them in resistor codes. Um, so the, the resistor, the reason I did the resistor codes is that I can just look at it and know what I can look at the other end because both ends are colored. I can look at the other end and know exactly what number input I'm putting this into when I'm plugging things in. So, um, so this make, these are much nice much nicer cables when in that bag. If you're going to put it in a bag, that's why you need that right angle. So, um, so anyway, so that was, uh, and, and, the, and the company that makes these, by the way, is Cable Techniques, um, is the company that makes them. You can buy them in raw pieces or I think you can buy them pre-made. And again, I bought them in raw pieces with the intention of making them and then ended up just having an audio department make them. Um, and then here's the, here is the smaller rig. This is the second day uh, rig. And so here you can see us getting much smaller. So what we did is, is Cassie now has a handle on the other, or, or, you know, handle on the other side. Um, we moved all the audio over to Peter. Um, so all the transmitters are over there. I'll show you in a second. Um, and here you can kind of see it. So you can see she's got a, a handle on that side. So, she, so what she was able to do is pick it up off the tripod. We got to work on what that looks like as far as getting on and off the tripod. I think we need a better mount there, but, but she was able to now roam around with us as needed. Um, and here's a kind of a closer shot of that. Of that rig. Here's Peter, and you can see what we had moved is um, Peter had the light rig. Robert wasn't able to join us for the second day, so Peter was doing camera and being uh, schlepping the, uh, um, the the gear around on. And it was very. <laughs> I, think, I think I should. I think I might have to buy Peter a massage. Peter gets an Iron Man award for this. Yeah, no, no. Peter rocked. <laughs> you know, he was great and no complaints. No, no. Oh my back. He was just like, yep. Well, here we go. You know, like and and so um, so anyway. Uh, here are the, here are the Teradek. Um, we have to figure out a better way. What I want to do eventually is what I'm going to work on. My learning here is getting all these transmitters and the audio transmitters all close together is bad. So by the end, I don't have a picture of it. By the end, we were attaching the electrosonics up here because we we're getting little hits and it's not the electrosonic. It's the fact that it was near all this metal and other transmitters. So what I want to do is we, we ended up having, I, I realized I didn't take a picture of it, but we ended up moving the transmitters, the receivers for the electrosonics up, up here. What we're going to do next is try to get the electrosonics up here and then I'm going to try to mount these transmitters a little bit further away. I mean, we can't make them too far away, but get them and then kind of splay them out, you know, this way. 
so that we're, um, so that these are all, we generally had almost no breakup. I think we had breakup like once in the whole thing. So it wasn't that big of a deal. Those are receivers you're talking about. These are the receivers. receivers, Yeah, these are the receivers. Because we bring that video back to those receivers um, there because they they then get cabled. You can see the cable right here. They get cabled into the live view um, here. And so this is the, and one of them goes through a, a, this is in this little front pouch um, of the Stingray. They they get, um, that's where we embed the audio. The audio is a little bit of a funky thing. We're using AES. um, And so out of the, out of the, um, we talked about this on the last time, but out of the Scorpio, we get all the channels in and then we have channels one through four come out of left and right AES. And then we had, we have to use a, um, a Hiroshi cable with, uh, that, that goes out to the, um, the other inputs quarter inch that all go into the, into the, um, and better here. So, um, so anyway, so that's, that was kind of the way that that was kind of managed here. Here you can see it from the back. We can kind of keep this open so we can go in here. You can see the little, little transmitter. We're probably going to find a better place for this as well. It Overall, it worked great. But this is the little antenna that is sticking out of the live view um, that is um, uh, sticking out of the live view that is providing the IFB return. So that's that's what that was for. Um, again, I think we're going to end up building like little socks and stuff like this for this whole thing so we can kind of put things in better places for them. So we're going to kind of customize everybody's rig, not permanently, but somewhat. Uh, we're going to customize the rigs a little bit to get more. Here you can see a better shot of this of this back brace. So that back brace is, um, you know, and you can see it, it, it attaches in three places here um, to the Stingray so that it reduces the, I think Peter still felt it a lot in his shoulders, but not nearly as much as he would have with the, with the strap. So um, anyway, so that's the, uh, and here you can kind of see, um, the, yeah, you can see the transmitter kind of, so this is a little cable, a little eighth inch that goes up into here um, to make that actually work. Um, and here's a closer shot of the, you know, we started moving these transmitters to the side, these electrosonic transmitters to the side to try to get them away from all this metal. And again, we eventually moved them up here, but my cable, this cable wasn't long enough. This is why we do these things. You put them together, you run them in the field, and then you figure out, oh, let's change X, Y, and Z. So here you can see it. And this is kind of him with the, you know, there we go. And there's Cassie with the close-up of the second one. And the only thing we did with the, I mean, the the thing that I actually realized because I was in it, um, I don't have the, the main thing we did with the HDR test, of course, was use the FX3, transmit it back in. And then we had an ambisonic mic that we that we then embedded, and I think it worked out pretty well. So that's the next thing for the ambisonic mic, of course, is to get those electrosonics onto the onto the base of the you know kind of attached to the base of uh, the the wire or the ambisonic mic, so that we can um, not be tethered there. So that was a, a tethering process that we had to kind of work through. Uh, go ahead, Jason. Boy, that audio rig was. It- impressive um i i've you know i've done lots of audio rigs i've never seen anything portable like that wow my second thought is i've never seen a monopod with rails uh, ever like not a single time pretty cool the next step yeah it worked pretty well yeah go ahead alex yeah, for uh, that comment you made about HDMI cables, have you looked at Condor Blue? Because they make these little lightweight, short, coiled cables. Actually, it looked like uh, Cassie's rig had a Condor Blue cable on it. I had one. That was my, that's, I, I have a Condor Blue. Tlaloc actually got that on the last one. Um, and that is a co- little small coiled cable that does, um, uh, that is the DTAP, uh, DTAP power for the Teradek. It came that Condor makes those. 
I, I might look at the cables. I, I have to say that I hate coiled cables. And so it's, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't, I don't buy them by choice. I buy them at the last minute or if somebody else gets them. I find that they get all tangled. They're very hard to manage as cable management with coiled cables makes me a little, a little crazy. Um, but I, you know, it's it, what I'd rather do is get more of those little, you know, um, I realized what I wanted was more of those little things that you pop because I have so many cheese plates and stuff. Uh, I can't think of the name of the company. Remember Sprig, Sprig. I want to get more Sprigs so that I can, um, so that I can kind of route all my stuff around it. But you know, what happens is, is after we do one of these shows, now I'm going to go back to my house and accessorize a little bit and, and kind of build this rig out so that I can figure out what are the actual cable lengths that I need and how do I make this work? And I am looking for a really thin HDMI, the best HDMI cables to date for this thing. And the problem is they're only six feet or three feet or six feet long are the Apple cables. I don't know what it is, but the Apple HDMI cables are, they don't make them anymore, are very, very bendy. And they are very small in the ends and they work great. And I'm going to try to find some, I just wish that I could find those for that were still made and shorter. Um, but yeah, I don't like the coiled cables. Um, I feel like they make a big mess, but, um, but I may, may to your point, do them if I can't find something better. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, look for red mirror cables. They make those skinny ones where they have little amplifiers. In them. So you said red mirror? Red mirror, yeah, in the arc. Uh, one thing I noticed, a uh, couple of things we had problems with. You you already talked about getting the receivers further away. When your first day, when you had those electro receivers within a foot of the transmitters, because those high power Teradek transmitters swamp any yeah. receiver that's within about a foot and a half of them. So you got to get any receivers further than a couple of feet away from those transmitters. So you got to watch out for that. So it would be good to get yeah. them off on something else, which is what you did. Um, the other thing is battery power. Was everything on each of the cameras being powered off that one V-slot battery or through D-taps and through? Yep. And that it, was one problem was we kept, we lost power during both days on one of the cameras or both of the cameras. But that wasn't, that wasn't a battery issue. I don't think, I think that, that was a connection issue. I think it just got knocked, the D-tap got knocked out. So it was a... Uh, there was a D-tap issue where we got it got knocked out. I don't think we. I don't think we. Did you have to replace batteries at all during the show? Mm -hmm. No, but it was we would have if we had gone longer. That was one of the reasons that we shortened the the broadcast was we realized oh, we're burning through these batteries. And the problem was I had tested the batteries and they looked like they were going to do four hours, but we just didn't have. I it was hard to test them as needed, right? Uh -huh. So um, so one of the things that I what was really hard on the first day was that. We kind of reorganized how we did it. This is every time we, we've been, we've done this every single time now. And what I'm going to really work on for NAB is to make sure that uh, no less than one week and probably two weeks before the event, I have all the gear we're going to use. Period. And if we don't have it, we're not using it. <laughs> so that I can, I'm used to I'm used to doing. Uh, you know, I'm for Pixelcore. All I did was we build this up in the warehouse. We get it exactly the way we want it. And then we mark everything and take it apart. And I'm going back to that. I'm going back to my safe place, which is I don't want to build anything on on ground on the ground. And I want to know exactly how long everything's going to last. And I'm, that's what I'm used to. And I'm just I'm I, I realized there was a reason I was used to it is because it was a good idea. So um, so I'm going to work on getting um, working with our partners to get what we need for the next one long in advance, um, so that we can make that work. The other thing I was going to say is that. If you had the cart, you could put a block battery on it. And you could also put a mast and put all your receivers up on a mast above the heads. It's important to get them above the heads of the people that are walking around because there's a lot of meat bags running around there that absorb RF. 
And if you get the receivers up above the heads of most people, it'll really improve your transmission yeah, I, and dropouts. But. I, I think that I think that if we just get the transmitters apart from each other, I think that a little less metal. I think we'll test the receivers, it. But I, you mean, right? The receivers. I think the receivers yeah. on the shoulders, if I just didn't have mm-hmm. enough cable to do that, I think that if the receivers are on the shoulders of the person walking around, I think it'll work. Above um, the shoulders so that the antennas are above the shoulders. Above the shoulders, right. right. Yeah, so... Um, I think that we can get it there. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little resistant to, I mean, I, I, the cart worked really well. It just felt like a little bit of a tank for what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to keep it to, peep, to, to bipedal, um, you know, mounting. And so... Um, the other question on, on batteries on Robert's rig, uh, how was the battery distribution done there for the both the Live View has its own battery and the, the Scorpio has its internal batteries, or what were you running the Scorpio and the receivers off of? So the, the Scorpio was running from the, uh, Scorpio has its own batteries. That'll last okay. a long time. I got two right. 970 batteries in it. Then yeah. the, um, the uh, I had a, what I did is I took the V mount of the small rig and I took its mount off. So that the mount that comes with it to go onto rails. So I oh. unscrewed that. And so all I had was this little plate and by putting it on, that plate has all all kinds of service on it. So the the V mount plate that small rig makes, and then I have a small rig uh, the battery. And so now I've got lots of barrels, two D taps, two USBs. The USB A, by the way, doesn't power enough for some of the stuff. So I needed to use the USB C for that. So that was a little bit of a challenge. And then I remember that the the V mount needs a, it has a. Were you running uh, on the receivers? The electro receivers were there, internal batteries. Uh, electro receivers were on internal batteries. Yep. I'm just trying, they, curious, trying to find out how the battery distribution. Absolutely. No, batteries, I, batteries were everything. <laughs> like, not That's everything, exactly. but batteries. And they are the weakest link. And a lot of times you don't know which battery has gone dead if you've got multiple batteries providing power. So yeah, yeah 100%. The is, yeah. yeah, the, I think that, um, yeah, there, there has to be better battery management. We just needed twice as many batteries to go longer. Um, mm-hmm. Now, the other thing is, is that, so we'll, you know, like for NAB, I'm just going to have two, uh, you know, two batteries for everything that we need. What I'm pushing for hard at NAB, and I'm going to see if I can get it. We almost, well, so Drexel offered us a, you know, part of their booth, which would have been great. Um, and we could have used it. The problem was getting bandwidth to that booth was turned out to be a non-starter. Um, we had been offered some help from the switch, but we couldn't, it's getting from the MPO to the booth was going to be more money than we had. So, so what we're working on is finding, you know, looking for sponsorship and in kind and all kinds of other stuff to, for NAB to get space on the floor that we can have as well as a, um, uh, space on the floor as well as internet or potentially the switch onto the, onto the floor. Um, so that we can then, um, you know, now we can cover that area in a different way. And you know, what it does, it takes a lot of pressure off the rig. If anything happens to the rig or or we have break times with the rigs, you know, so that we can do it. Back so to that's, the mothership, yeah, right. Yeah, well, or, or just, I just need a moment. Like, you know, right now we're just live, we're live there. We can always go back to the panel, of course, but we want to get to a point where we can do it. And that's going to allow us to kind of get to that next level, which the next step from this is running the entire day. You know, the first step, you know, the first step is going to, you know, getting to a 10 o'clock to 6 p.m. runtime and eventually an 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. runtime is where we want to get to for the each day um, for really spe- covering these events in, in, in incredible detail. Like, that's the goal. 
is to get to a point where you get to see as much as we can give you of those. We're starting off small, one hour, two hours here, you know, figuring this out. There's no reason to run ourselves into the ground when we know that we're already wrong when we started it. <laughs> but 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 if we, as we figure this out, the goal is, is to really have, I mean, I think that there's an NAB 2025 or 2026 when there's four different channels. There's an audio channel and a grip channel and a video channel and a streaming channel all covering different things, you know, and there's just lots and lots and lots to watch so that, so that we can really give the, the coverage that it deserves to all the people who can't make it, you know, like the people who can make it, there's, I will tell you, I did, I did a lot of, made a lot of new friends, did a bunch of deals, had a great time going to these different conferences. There's nothing that replaces going to the, going to the show. Like it's, it's, it's a great thing to do to go to the show. And I, I'm, I remember that now. Like I, I was like, after, during COVID, I was like, I never want to go to another show, but going to the show, there's a lot of things you get that are just there, but there's still 90, how do we provide a great experience for that 99.99999% that'll like just, it, it's not logistically possible for them to get there. Yeah. Go ahead, Courtney. Oh, one other tip is, uh, and I wanted it so, so much to get the recording of Steve Jobs going, you're holding it wrong. Uh, tip for you, Alex, is uh, with those uh, plug-on transmitters, especially the digital ones now, uh, they've only got a limited uh, uh, amount of power. If you hold your microphone around the transmitter, you're, you're holding the closing antenna. Off. Yeah, yeah, you're closing off the antenna. So you got to remember to hold it above the plug-on because yep. that can really reduce your range and create a lot of multipath hits, which is what we were getting. So. Got it. You're holding it wrong. <laughs> Good, John. Hats off to the crew. I appreciate your hard work. Peter Rosado is a superhero. We put him out in the middle of the desert for three days. He never complained once. Yeah. The guy's amazing. <laughs> He's a machine. Um, hey, we're getting better and better. I've attended every show that we've done, and, and it's getting better and better. The audio sounded fantastic. Are we using SM58s? On the, yeah, on those, the, just, those are just SM58s. They sound fantastic. Well, and the thing that's really exciting is, is that I think the 5.1 is, is kind of still a work in progress. But the thing is, is that being able to bring some of that surround in, but being able to attenuate it, you know, so that it's not a distraction is something we're going to keep on playing with um, as we as we go forward. I may start offering to do some coverage for other shows that are happening in Moscone or something up here. So I don't have to go all the way down to, you know, I don't have to just go to and, and see if we can do more where we can take the kit out more often so that I can really get, you know, dial that in. I think I just need more reps, but I think we're going to, I think by, by Seagraph, we're going to, I mean, not by Seagraph, but by NAB fall, we're going to have a really good solution. And I think by NAB next year, we'll have a pretty, uh, the best, I think it'll be the best coverage of that, of, uh, I think there's a potential that 2024 C, uh, um, sorry, uh, NAB will probably be the best coverage of that anybody's ever done. <laughs> like if we keep on going at the trajectory we're going. Um, uh, let's go to the let's go to the questions. First one comes from Jonas Dottel in Stuttgart, uh, Germany. Do you know already what caused the issues with the cameras and them dropping off when they were occasionally? Uh, there was a couple where we knocked the power out of the transmit uh, the receiver. <laughs> So that was, we have, you know, getting, figuring out the cabling. Um, so there's two problems. One is that we, um, uh, we dropped the cabling. Uh, uh, we, we knocked one of the DTAPs out. So we have to get better at securing those and figuring that out. And, and a lot of it has to do with cable management. I'm getting better in this, in the, um, the case that the, that the Scorpio sits in that we're managing all that problem, the Stingray. It's just figuring out the cable management that makes sense for us to have that there. And some cables just got pulled a little bit and it pulled the DTAP out. Uh, the second breakup was I got, I think we got ahead. I think, um, I think what happened was somehow when we had two cameras, Nick and I started going somewhere else. 
And somehow I think one of the cameras was holding back to do something. And Peter was like, between cameras. So I think that there was this, you know, we need to keep the kind of the cameras in in uh, in flow so that they weren't getting stretched. I think that was the only transmission broke breakup that we had. Um, but the other one was a power issue with it. And it wasn't that we lost power. It's not we lost power, but it was just a, something getting dislodged, I think was the only only time we, we lost it there. Uh, overall, I think that 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 transmission actually worked pretty well. Um, next question. Next one comes from Tlaloc Lopez-Waterman in Galisteo, New Mexico. I was at a conference yesterday for Native American art. Made me wonder about covering non-audiovisual and tech. Would office hours stay away from that sort of thing? Go ahead, Bill. Well, I just think that, that that sometimes I've been through an art museum. Sometimes I like to do it on my own and just experience for myself. But I've taken a couple of tours with a docent where somebody really understood what you were looking at and can guide you into a deeper understanding of visual arts. I think that would be a fabulous kind of live tour to do, to be able to walk through something where you're really seeing high-end brilliantly conceived art and then have some explanation that helps you understand it at a deeper level. I think that would be incredibly compelling. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I think for some of those installations that use a lot of high technology to present the art, like multiple projectors or or projection mapping, you know, that would be interesting to cover uh, as a live stream. Of course, a lot of those, uh, you know, getting permission to live stream those events, you know, because if you're live streaming it, people may not come to see it goes, hey, we saw the live stream. We don't need to go. So you will have to get permission from the artists and the, everyone. At the, yeah. And when someone turns me down because of that, I just know that they're having old, they have a, they have a problem with old thinking. It, it just is never that way. Like, like uh, as someone who's done this for 20 years, showing people video of your event has people want to go the next year. It does not replace them from wanting to go to it. it. And it's just old thinking that people get into these these events. I mean, Courtney brings up something that comes up a lot, like, oh, if I show it on video, no one's going to come. If you show it on video, you know, if one-tenth of the people watching come, it's going to increase the number of, and it's never, people are never like, I'm not going because because of that. So I I, I don't, I, I think that's, you know, but I, I will say that I, my intention is that this is a solution for all conferences, you know, that this is something that should happen in every conference, that we should be making the sessions more available and more conversational with the online audience. One of the big comments with Seagraph was they had all these events, and they had a virtual pass, and they had no way to ask questions remotely. Hmm, I wonder how we could fix that. So, um, so anyway, so the, um, so there's, you know, finding those things to be more, uh, more accessible, like what we're really looking at is A, how do we make these conferences more accessible to the rest of the world so that the, it's a better impact for the conference? It's a better impact for the sponsors and the and the exhibitors. It's a better impact, you know, to, to, to get that wider. And B, how do we think about the next generation of conferences and how do we build those so that they, they're built that way from the DNA? Right now we're clumping this onto the outside of a, of a conference. What happens if we build the conference from the ground up to support this kind of experience? And that's part of what we're thinking about as we do this. Like, for instance, you really want, I would, what I did like about Seagraph a lot more than NAB, uh, well, Cinegear, I liked it a lot better than Cinegear because it was all indoors. Um, it, I like, I did not like that at all. Um, but I love, Cinegear is still the best density of, of stuff, but it's still, anyway, um, but what Seagraph was really great is a lot of the booths were smaller. So there was a lot less walking and a lot less loudness and a lot less other things. It was much easier for us to cover and it makes it really underlines something that I think is I really want to give booths if I built one of these from scratch I would build them in 20 foot by 10 foot spaces give them walls that they can just put stuff on so they don't have to load in 
Um, and because uh, these are a lot of smaller manufacturers and they don't want to do a big build. And most companies would not do a big build if they had the opportunity. Not some of them would, but most of them would not if they had if they had something they could just put up. And it also helps us control audio. I put a lighting grid over it to make it look pretty. Um, I give internet to all the booths automatically, <laughs> like all these things so that so that people have the ability to express that. Now, let's go to the next question. Peter Belbin in uh, Houston, Texas says, day one, one camera had no audio latency, but the other had significant audio versus video timing issues. Perhaps both cameras should receive audio or neither camera should capture audio. So the latency will be consistent regardless of the camera. 100%. That's one of the reasons we switched on the second day to pushing both of both all the audio into the into the Scorpio hadn't thought about it like i you know it was like once people said oh there's latency on the second camera i was like oh right yeah there would be wouldn't there um and and uh so the first camera had the audio going straight in which means there's zero latency second camera had um it was you know it's going over a transmitter and going through a thing and you know it's so it definitely had latency um we uh we took the, the it away from both cameras after that and we'd probably continue to to do that go ahead courtney yeah, I was noticing some very funny things happening with Sync. Uh, as a panelist, we're on the Zoom call, and we were seeing the program feed like we do here every day. And usually the program feed is delayed because it's coming either from YouTube or the feed that's going to YouTube. So it's never in sync with the live video. But I noticed on the day that we were doing those remotes, it was in dead sync. Program was in dead sync uh, with the right. the feed that we were hearing in our ears, so when you saw Mickey us. playing with the delay there, no, no, but when you saw us, it was in it was directly in right because we're not going back and forth. You're seeing the direct feed from the live view up here, so if it's in sync, it should show up in sync here because you're you, what you were hearing was a direct feed that was in sync. So that's what, that's weird, why it was. The weird thing is when Bill would talk, he would be out of sync on my right. end. If you're looking at the program, he'd be out of sync. I see. Because it's the way that the Zoom is managed versus the way that the live view is managed. And this is... I uh, gotcha. Okay. And this is important as we move forward is because one of the things we're trying to do is get to a point where, you know, that live view can be... I can run a 4K coverage going into 1080p Zoom. I don't know if we had that wired up for this one, but what we're trying to do... This is why we're doing HDR in Zoom is because what I want to be able to do is do HDR 5.1 from uh, to, to YouTube from um, the, the live view... And then, um, uh, so that when we cut to that, you're seeing this beautiful image, you hear everything around it, and we still have to make sure that those panelists fit into that. They don't look drab, you know, so we're trying to get all of that stuff working to, to, to produce a, a better a better show. Uh, next question. Tlaloc Lopez-Waterman, back from Galisteo, New Mexico. Batteries, batteries, batteries. Tell us about power management. I'd love to get a battery to V-mount. Uh, I love my single one, but can see how amazing double ones would be for uninterrupted power. Yeah, we, we don't have double ones yet, but, I'm, you know, it's it, starting to think about it. It's hard. The ones that we have are not probably as uh, robust. Um, these are the little small rigs. They're just very convenient. They have a lot of great little subsystems. They've got great outputs and so on and so forth. So the, I'm really happy with these little 99s. The reason 99 is so important is the TSA won't let you fly with anything bigger than a 99. Um, so everybody's building them now, just under 100 to, to fit into that. Um, and so, um, but the, uh, um, the, you know, that I don't know of a lot of places, it would be very hard for us in the mobile rig to dual battery something where it's flipping over from one to the other 
automatically. We just need to make sure we have time and be able to manage it. And and um, and and overall, the batteries lasted pretty long. We couldn't do it all day. That's why I want to have either a second rig or a second or a or a table, or we really plan the panelist time so that we can have breaks every certain number of hours to just swap batteries and keep moving. So we just have to figure out the timing. I but I'm more listening to that. But you know, a lot of high powered or really good um i can't remember which ones we use the pro cells i think from uh, these were um i can't remember which batteries we were using but uh but we you know better batteries than we used on the last one <laughs> so so anyway, go ahead bill well i have one of the plates that does sony npf 970s two of them onto a v-mount and it works great and i've got about 14 970s in my kit mm-hmm. in a pelican case so next time just let me know and we'll figure it well, out well I mean, the main thing is, is that the, these box batteries, these V-mounts ba- batteries are just very convenient. They're very small and they pop on and there's a tons of service on the outside of them, which is why, and I, I admit that now that I have three of them, I'm probably going to keep buying them because I tend to standardize like, okay, I have these, I do get it. The 970s are, that's what I have in the, um, in the, uh, Scorpio and they work great, but I probably will, they're a little bit more size and and so size and everything else becomes a, a thing so i'm probably going to standardize around these small rigs right now uh, next question jack rupel uh breckenridge colorado uh could you use your video from siggraph 2023 and create nerfs of objects i don't think that that the way we shot you really have to think about how you're shooting to event to, to do nerfs i mean we'll talk about nerfs next week at, on tuesday when we talk about seagraph itself but um, I think, I'll be honest, I, I get a lot of people at Seagraph were talking about shooting video and then generating nerves. It's a horrible idea. It's a horrible idea. <laughs> like, like, like as someone who's done photogrammetry for a long time, there's a thing called motion blur. Um, and and it's it really screws the thing up. I don't understand why. It's just, I feel like it's, People who don't know better that keep on promoting that that's an easy, a good and easy way. I hate it when people just say, well, this is the easy way to do that. And then they're producing something that is easy when you're shooting it and way harder in post to manage. But we'll talk about that on Tuesday. Jason, real quick. How would that even be possible without really, really consistent lighting? And wouldn't oh, no, no, you, you couldn't, your you couldn't texture do it with, just look like garbage? Shot. Yeah, it would look like garbage. Yeah, so, but you could do it with video. It's just, it's a bad idea. Um, uh, it's, I, the, the, it, it, drives me crazy when people talk about video and nerfs. Uh, Next question. Chad Lafarge in Columbia, Missouri says, was that tripod on a spider or would the wheels have dug into the flooring? Um, I think that it would, I think we could have put uh, Cassie's uh, tripod on on wheels, just just a wheelbase. And that would have been nice to kind of move things around. You'd see a bit of bumping, so we wouldn't really want to do it live. So that's why it didn't really matter. We have to get into a better cadence of how we get from one camera to the other or how we do moves. Um, or how we pull off of one camera and go to another one, and, and we're still figuring that out. I'm tempted to attempt to play with the easy rig, you know, the one that goes o- up over someone's head and comes down. You can kind of hang it. Um, I think for the main camera, that could be pretty compelling. Um, and so I, I always think they look goofy, so it's really hard for me to get over that, but I really think that could that could make a big difference. Next question. Uh, next one comes from Stefan Fischer, Wurzburg, Germany. All the four transmitter antennas are looking straight up. Shouldn't they be in a 45-degree angle for better transmission? The right one's 45 degrees to the right, and the left one's 45 degrees to the left. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, if you're talking about the Teradex, they go with a multi-antenna. It's for getting rid of uh, multipath. And so all the antennas are aligned, but they're off a quarter wave in distance. So when it something arrives from two different reflections into one antenna, it'll be better on the second antenna, third antenna. 
polarized the same way. And as we heard yesterday um, from our, whenever our electrosonics guy was on about the polarization of antennas, it's better to have, uh, have them uh, vertically mounted than horizontally uh, usually. And uh, at 45 degrees, it's kind of a compromise. Uh, So you're halfway, unless you're doing a circularly polarized transmission, but they don't do that on those Teradex. So I think they designed them that way to be all vertical. Uh, and I see them that way most of the time. Although I did notice that the DJI has uh, two vertical and two horizontal. So maybe they switch uh, phase I, that way. So. You know, I have to admit that I was so overwhelmed with it. Normally, I pull them all out. So I make a little I make a little hand that opens up. And I, that's my normal configuration. And I and I uh, just didn't do it because I was I was, uh, you know, saturated. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. I noticed when I was yep. looking at the photos later, I was like, why did I do that? Because I always splay them out exactly the way that Stefan uh, is, is requesting, re- 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 and I just didn't do it this time. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, Carl Winkler on, uh, it was Wednesday's show of Electrosonics, explained it all and had graphics and things like that. If it's not circular polarized, mm-hmm. you have to have the right antenna orientation. And I'm sure they designed their system for the right mm-hmm. one for that task. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, says, how many hours total were you on the show floor covering the show, and what would be the maximum number of hours a crew could do this sort of coverage? Um, You know, if you have enough crew and you're swapping things out and you have multiple rigs, I mean, my goal is to get to 12 hours, um, you know, so eight to eight. The idea is is that you run a couple hours before you're talking about what what the news was and you saw it all there. And by the way, when I say that, this is what Twit used to do. They used to do eight to six, eight to seven every single day at 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 at, um, at NAB and other things. And so, once you have a table, it gets a lot easier. And so, what you do is you um, the table allows you to kind of take even big breaks, two or three hour breaks, um, where you're just at the table or you're just doing other things. So, Twit did this during NAB. They would do it all day, you know, like it was. So, I know that that is a doable thing. Doing it the way we're doing it is a little too light, but but the idea is that we would get with a little more planning, a little more push. Um, you know, you start in the morning a couple hours before doing pre-show and talking about what happened the last day and everything else. And then you kick into it at 10. And then if we had two or three crews roaming around a large conference, the, which we don't have to deal with until next NAB, um, or well, I, the IBC team will need to manage it. IBC is coming up in a, about a, you know, three or four weeks. They'll have to deal with the Rye, which is insane. Um, and um, so the, the um, but for the NAB um, coverage, uh, what I'm trying to do is have a, t- a booth and a rig, possibly two, we'll see. Um, and then then you can keep going because then you can give people rests. If you think about it, if we have, let's say, four rigs, if we have three roaming rigs and one table, um, that means every rig is only doing 10 minutes an hour or 15 minutes an hour. Like, it's just like, you know, it's it's only every location is doing, it's, it's a really l- low lift. And so it takes more people. That's the big thing. But there's no limit. I mean, we could go 24-7 if we wanted to um, at some point, but I don't need to do that. What I'd probably do is once I got to that, once we get to that point, which is still probably a year, year, year or two away, once we get to that point, what we probably do is start to subdivide the channels. So we'd have the main channel. And then we start having the audio channels. If you just want, if you all you care about is audio, it's at NAB. You can just watch audio and video and other things like that. Next question. Next one from Junior Grant in New York City. Good day, office hours. Alex, it was good to see you in the zone on the show floor again. How much weight was Peter carrying? <laughs> I did, we didn't weigh it. I don't think we wanted to know. I, my guess is probably about 40 to 50 pounds is my guess of what he was he, what he was carrying around. Um, I do think that I know that I put that rig on to test it, and I felt like one of the things for me 
was that the live view on the backpack seems like more, but it actually made it way easier for me. So the weight pulling back allowed it to center more on me than when I had just the Scorpio on the front. I was like, oh, it's going to pull me forward a little bit. And, and you can adjust that up and down. But that was that was something that came into kind of consideration there. Uh, next question. Peter Belbin, Houston, Texas. If you have three camera teams, two main and one highlight, and one pair of on-screen talent, main cameras can leapfrog each other, allowing the presenters to move into already established camera coverage. That's what we're we've talked about that you're right i mean that's the you know we're trying to figure out that that little process of having a close-up camera and two main cameras and then when the idea is that when the people are talking to each other we can we can have one that's kind of grabbing a what i'd like to do is a close-up of one of the people talking or close-up of the person that you're talking to one of the things i started experimenting with it was really nice to have nick and because nick knew so much about what he was talking about as well is that at the, near the end of the of the second hit, I started just backing away. I just back out of the frame, and that way I could prep and look at questions and do other things. And so having those cameras and not being on camera the whole time allows me, who was acting kind of as the moderator on site, to kind of go through questions and figure them out and what I wanted to do next. So it was good. And I, I was managing um, overall the Mukana X host view on my phone worked well. So we're going to, I'll probably keep on refining that. That that worked pretty well. The, there's a thumb area so that you can scroll and it's on the wrong side for me. So I, I, we'll fix that for the next one. Uh, next question. Claudia Lopez Waterman, Galisto, New Mexico. How come monopods are preferred? Can you use a tripod as a monopod and have, and that way have a tripod when needed? You kind of can. Um, you, you definitely can pull them in and, and make it work. I, I know that when we did tripods in the past, the reason we were, we were moving to the monopods, when I looked at the tripod at NEB, it was always like there was wrestling with the tripod to move it. And um, and it was, and it, the thing is, if you want to try to do it seamlessly, you really can't, you know, with the tripod. Like there's just a lot of jiggling around and stuff like that of trying to get it pulled together. Uh, with the monopod, you can literally just pick it up and keep walking and then set it back down again and make it work. And so, you know, I felt like it more, looked more fluid with um, the monopod. Um, so that's why. But we do have the main camera was on the tripod. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. That's exactly been my experience. I've shot, I've moved from shooting 75, 80% tripods to shooting 70, 80% monopods for anything where I have to be mobile and go cover an event kind of thing. And it allows so much more flexibility. I mean, particularly as you get into light, lighter weight cameras, the heavier one's a little tough, but with a lightweight camera, boy, you have so much flexible. You can toss it up high for an overhead shot. You can flip it around and go low. Uh, you just get a lot more done in a short period of time and in crowded circumstances with a lot of people walking by you. I can't tell you the number of times people tripped into tripod legs and banged the wheels and did everything that just made it yeah. a hassle. Yeah, the, the monopod works a lot better for that reason as well. Good, Courtney. Yeah, and just remember as far as carrying it around with you, the uh, monopod weighs, you know, one-fifth at least, you know, especially if you've got a uh, good fluid head on top of that tripod. You know, it's going to weigh, uh, you know, a fraction of what that tripod is. So when you got to pick up that whole rig and move it to another location, it gets really heavy if you're trying to carry it with the camera actually shooting something, you know, and not just pointed at the ceiling as it's over your shoulder carrying it. The monopod, you can do that. Just keep it pointed forward, pick it up, and let the monopod act as a little bit of a gimbal as you walk along. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, back. Would it be possible to do a quick run-by of every booth using fast motion? Of course, it would take an athletic videographer. 
You don't really have to do a run by. I think what I would do is just do hyperlapse. So I would just, um, you know, I think I could do, I, I thought about, Paul was talking about that with me a little earlier. And I, I think as I thought about it more, I was like, oh, that could be really fun where you have, if I walked slowly down and then turned and looked and then walked down and turned and looked and then walked down and then and did the whole thing pretty slowly, I could run a high, with it empty, you know, just get, you know, basically what we do is get an exhibitor pass or a work pass, get in there 15 minutes before the place opens and just walk through the whole front or half an hour and just walk through the whole thing casually. I think you could end up with a really great hyperlapse that would be, um, that then we could stop and talk about each one and you'd really feel like you were there. It's a really good idea. We'll, we're going to try that for a future one. I go according. Yeah, another idea is just get one of those new DJI action cameras uh, that has uh, stay, you know, stabilization, horizontal stabilization, and stick it on Robert's head so that when you're walking, when the two other cameras are going to the other thing, as he's walking through, it'll give you a nice stabilized switch to that input, go into the third input on the, on the live view and switch to that when you're relocating from booth to booth, and that way we'll have a nice stabilized walkthrough camera uh, taking us to the next location. Good, Bill. Didn't make it to the air, but we did have a map of the show floor and a red dot that showed uh, where certain booths were that we were playing with a little bit right before it. It'd be fabulous that first day to just have somebody take a walk through all the show floor areas and kind of give you an orientation of the booth and then being able to cut back to that with the red dot showing where you are on the show floor. Be a great useful thing for anybody who's going to the show to see where things are located. Next question. Uh, next one comes from Jack Rupel, Breckenridge, Colorado. What are your thoughts of Experience SIGGRAPH 2023 and VR180? And he's got a link to it. You know, I wasn't able to go see that yet. I mean, in the middle of the show. But um, I think that it's a, uh, uh, we <laughs> we tried, so Robert had a, uh, uh, Robert had a, um, an R5 that we could have used that to record and then, someone sent me, I got a lens, you know, the dual 180 lens. And we were going to try to shoot 10 minutes of the show in stereo 180 with the ambisonic, but the lens showed up before the store opened that was supposed to get the lens. And so we didn't have it. So we're going to, we're, I'm, I have a, I'm going to be testing the R5C with, uh, with the lens and some ambisonic stuff starting next week. So I'll, we'll let you know um, how that, how that goes. But I think that that's a future that we'll, we'll probably play into. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael, when do you think we'll see all of the coverage in HDR 5.1? Uh, I'm hoping by, it'll be by the fall. I'm trying to get to a point where we feel comfortable doing the HDR 5.1 for NAB New York. Um, I don't think that the, the, um, uh, the IBC team, I think, is going to stay, you know, with a with an SDR, HD, you know, um, 1080 uh, system. And so we're excited to see what they have planned there. But the um, but I think we're going to try to do it. I'd, I'd like to just move over. So we're going to try to work with the final things. I feel like the tone mapping isn't perfect with the HDR and I'm going to take another look at it. But I think that 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 conversion isn't hasn't been perfect that I want to look at. Um, and so and it, but I maybe also just need to move to the NBC LUTs and then we can go back and forth. I'm trying to figure that out too. Um, but if we can get all, all that, that pipeline working between now and, and NAB fall, definitely next year, I expect to go to HDR 5.1 for everything, um, and including office hours. So that's, that's what we're just slowly, <laughs> slowly figuring all these little bits and pieces out. Thank you so much to the panelists. Thanks. Thanks to, I mean, 
thank you to the incredible team that helped us with Seagraph. Uh, 22 people from around the world uh, got together. We're playing a game that I don't think anyone else can play. Um, and we're really excited about that. Um, and, and we're just, and I think that we're changing the way, the accessibility of these shows, these expos. These are all little baby steps towards the idea that everyone around the world can experience the event. And so the people who play on these teams we're, you know, we're taking, you know, we're taking all the hits. We're trying to figure this all out. But I think it changes the way, it changes the way information flows from these events. These events are very valuable and people learn a lot from them. And we, we bring a lot of thinkers together, but we have to figure out a way to make it more accessible and make it more available to everyone. And it's good for everyone for that to happen. So we're going to, um, you know, keep on working on it. We really appreciate the Seagraph team and everybody that was part of the, and we're going to open up. Um, I meant to have it open before I started the show, but the sign up for NAB 2020, uh, the NAB New York is going to go up into Discord uh, right after the show. <laughs> so, so if you're interested in 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 um, being part one of part of the coverage in New York, um, look for that. I'm going to post that form um, uh, that that Brian's already built for us um, in the in Discord in the Alex announcements. Um, right after, I mean, in the next couple of minutes. So we'd love to have you be part of it, um, but either remotely or in person. And um, we're really excited about it. It'll be the next uh, next level of all of this. Thanks to the panelists who showed up today. We can't do this without you. Um, thanks to the producers who did a great job. At, it's great coming in in the morning and having 14 great questions before we start. Really, uh, it's great. So great work by the producers of, of that and all the other questions that came in. Just really, really well done. Um, and uh, of course, thanks to the incredible team on the back end. Um, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing we do here. And uh, it's, it's, it's uh, the, the incredible back end team that makes this work, uh, that cuts this show together, that develops all the software that's required to make it work, that manages everyone from the time we think about doing it to, you know, as people are walking in, just, just really incredible work. So thank you for your contribution. All right, uh, we traveled, and I'm my uh, my thing is all discombobulated. I'm testing something, and it makes everything harder. We traveled seventy thousand miles today, one hundred thirteen thousand kilometers. That's five hundred fifty-seven million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. Thoughts and prayers for everyone in Maui today. Oh yeah. man, that was crazy. Instead of going to bed every morning, I decide instead to travel half a billion bananas. <laughs> Dad, I gotta go to the store for scale. I can't scale anything. Yeah, no joke. Thoughts and prayers for Maui. A uh, reminder that they're at 10 a.m. today, Memo Live with Oliver. So they're gonna be he's gonna be working with Tony and um, showing how to put it together. We're gonna do it live in in uh, office hours, so 10 a.m. today. So stay tuned for that. Be in after hours, right? In after hours, not office hours. Tomorrow we've got the panelist meeting and the volunteer meeting. And um, so stay tuned for that as well.